You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello and welcome back to the movie graveyard. You know, we always look back in time here, movies from the past, and uh, we're you know, twenty twenty one's getting long in the tooth, ain't it, Trev? Oh, it's it, it feels. I mean, remember at the beginning <laughs> of this year we thought this was going to be the good year, yeah, twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah, everybody was like twenty twenty's over. But yeah. it's like oh, we'll get ready for the second part of twenty 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 one. Twenty twenty part two. Yeah, but you know, as always. We're always happy to bring you the best podcast out there that talks about old movies. And you know why this is the best podcast that talks about old movies, Trev? Because we're the only one willing to talk about this movie? Well, exactly. But but more directly, I was going to say, because we got you. And you, oh, thank you. Yeah, so and, and you, you bring a lot uh, in terms of... I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll call you, in, in a way, I'll call you the... Uh, the architect of this show, just because you don't plan out every episode that we do, but the special episodes you do, and uh, you know this one, this one, we're just doing a, a kind of a normal standard show here. But uh, again, another great solid pick from uh, Trevor Pumpkin Cider. <laughs> well, that that goes both ways because you are always receptive to those ideas, and every kind of about throw idea I throw at you, you've been uh, very willing to indulge in with like the special episodes, and and yeah, this is one I brought up to you because it just seemed like. This is a movie that needs to be talked about. I'm very, very excited for this one. You and I have done some real humdingers, but I, I would say this might be the weirdest movie we've ever done. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. I'm trying to think about. It. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, it it might be. I mean, we've definitely done some ones that were like outlandish in terms of the horror genre. Yeah, you know, like some outrageous premises. I would say, but in terms of just an overall tone and everything of a movie, this yeah. could be the weirdest one. Yeah, this is just one of those movies where you look at, and the most fascinating thing about it is that this was made by a right. studio. Right. And I, I, before we get into it, I just want to briefly mention, because I didn't respond to when you sent me this message, but you had mentioned that, uh, so both you and I just, uh, and obviously we'll talk a moment about what the movie is, but both you and I just got the new Blu-ray of it. And I had pretty much the exact same experience as you, where this is a movie, and I'm sure it's the same for you as well, that I just saw on cable all the time as a kid. This yeah. is one of those ones that was just on constantly, and that's why I kind of got obsessed with it. And then I hadn't revisited this in, I don't know, 15 years or more. And boy, when I sat down and rewatched this the other day, like every single moment, every single line, it just like clicked back with me. I, I didn't realize how much I had this movie memorized. And you had said the same thing yeah. where it's like, oh, this is the exact same movie I remember. And yeah, that this, it just came flooding back for me. Yeah, like I, I've probably only seen this twice, like all the way through. Definitely snippets on cable, but yeah, uh, uh, once in the theater and then... Um, you know, on video or cable. I know I watched it again like a few years after that, but I it probably at, at the very least probably fifteen to twenty years since I watched it all the way through. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's one of those ones that even though it kind of has been around, once you see it, everything like no matter how long it's been, everything clicks in in the in your head. Like like you're never really like oh I don't remember this character. Oh I don't remember this like set piece. Like no. <laughs> It stays hidden in your brain whether you want to or not. So so we'll go ahead and get rolling on Nothing But Trouble here. 1991. Exactly. A great year. Um, it still feels like an 80s movie though, right? Like that's the it thing. does. 90, obviously 91 is not too far past the 80s, but this, this has a lot of the hallmarks of an 80s film. But it definitely has the weirdness of, of 80s movies 
Yeah. But but with a little bit, I'd say more of a, a early '90s kind of polish and sheen. But but that that also has to be. This is shockingly a high budget movie, but we'll get to that. But mm-hmm. we we have the Blu-ray pause on about the three second mark. It's just the very beginning of the movie starts out with the classic Warner Brothers uh, logo, Time Warner I missed, Company. I miss this logo. I know, Be- beautiful. That new, that new logo, Blah. Blah. Oh, it, it's complete. Well, you know what, too, Trevor. I, I know we probably talk about this a lot, but if you're going to do a logo, whether you do it now, then whatever, and I think you'll agree with me, do a hand painted logo. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So that's all I'll say about that. But I'll say one, two, three, go. And when you hear me say the word go, please hit play on your remotes. You ready, Trev? I'm ready. Ready. Nothing but trouble. One, two, three, go. Oh, beautiful logo. It almost yeah. looks like 3D. It's got so much depth to it. You know what yeah, I mean? it's so nice. Yeah. I, I just recently watched Dune, which I was a big fan of. But having like mm-hmm. a, a masterpiece kind of movie to, to me like that, start with that new ugly logo is just such a, such <laughs> Brutal. a kick in the nuts. You know? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, and speaking of 80s, how you said this has some trappings of some 80s or, you know, feel like this is definitely, I mean, it, it was in the 90s too, but this is classic 80s. Just start out your credits right away with aerial yeah. shots of a city. Yeah. Now, I guess we could say right away, um, I, I want to ask you this so we don't have to bring it up later, but what do you think of the, the title, Nothing But Trouble? Because as you probably know, this yeah. is not Dan Aykroyd's preferred title. He, he wanted to call this Vulcanvania. Um so what do you think? What's your take on that? Maybe I am just intoxicated with this movie, but I always love the title. And I know people yeah, go, ah, yeah, people go, ah, it's generic. They could have done this. And I'm just like, no, nah, it's perfect to me. It sums up the yeah. movie. It's the character of the movie. Yeah, when I hear Ackroyd say that he thinks Vulcan Vania would have been the better title, nobody knows what that word means. You know, you have to see the movie until it has any context. So I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, this movie still is not the most beloved movie. But I think uh, if it was called Vulcanvania, I'm not sure that would help very much. I th- I think the Vulcanvania um, uh, title conjures up possibly some more curiosity and 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 it makes you think this will be a fantasy film, which it definitely is in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like, you got a movie with such a high classic SML pedigree. I think you know, even though this movie flopped, and we'll probably get into that a little bit later i think just going with a normal title like nothing but trouble is is like a good comedy title like modern problems or Mm -hmm. the great outdoors or just any of the you know the previous Ackroyd uh chevy chase type movies that came out you know yeah i was just thinking as we were watching the opening credits on on spool so when i was a kid watching all these movies you know um maybe one of the first people i kind of was always constantly clocking is like having some awareness of an uh you know below the line person Casting director Marion Doherty. Mm. Boy, do I feel like she casted like every movie I saw when I was a kid. You know, it's one of those like names I remember seeing in the opening credits of every film. The the one that I remember like out the wazoo, and I always like wonder if this is a Mandela effect in my mind or maybe I whatever. But uh, I want to say there was a lady named Mary Jo Slater, and maybe this mm-hmm. is true, maybe this isn't. Maybe I read this, maybe this up. But I always thought that she was Christian Slater's mom, but I could be wrong about that. I think. Man, I, I feel like I, I think there might be some truth to that because I, I feel like his mom is in the business, right? Because even later, there was like a, I believe, a younger sibling called Ryan Slater who was in something called The Great Panda Adventure or something like that. And of course, if whatever else you can say about this movie, we just saw director of photography Dean Cundy. So this yes. movie doesn't look great. Exactly. The only way you could get more Dean Cundy if it was in a 235 to 1 aspect ratio. <laughs> 
You know, it's interesting. The day, the same day I watched this, later that night, just by pure coincidence, I was doing a movie night with a friend, and we picked uh, which I, another movie I hadn't watched in years, and that was um, uh, *Romancing the Stone*. Mm. And that was also Dean Cundey. And I was just like, man, this is the second movie I watched today with Dean Cundey as director of photography. And they're like, oh yeah, it's because he was a director of photography on like everything back then. So. Not, not to say this in a negative way at all, Trev, because I'm really not that type of person. But where we're at in history now, isn't it weird that there was an entire decade where um, Kathleen Turner was always kind of was like this smoke show lady. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, and it, great too, you know. Like yeah. yeah, and I mean, I mean, nothing gets her. You know, she, she. I mean, she was one. I think she was one of the best actresses of the decade. But I think a lot of her kind of sexy persona was, to her credit, was actually more her acting than it was even mm-hmm. her looks. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And here we're introduced, this is kind of the setup of the movie right away, you know, we're, we're like a whopping, you know, not counting credits, we're like a whopping minute and a half into this, is Chevy Chase meets this um, kind of a wreck of a lady, but she's beautiful, uh, obviously, uh, Demi Moore, and like, I just think this is like, kind of like a great setup, like you got the super um, successful uh, guy Chevy Chase he's he's in like financial publishing seems like he does like a newsletter not really a newsletter but I guess basically I don't know what you call it like it's a magazine but it seems like it's put out more on a like a daily yeah, basis no, it, almost it does seem like a newsletter it's basically like um, advice on what stocks to pick yeah. and, you know uh, it's a financial advice so as he will bring up later in the movie not a banker himself but yeah I'm um, trying to help people uh, make their money and then she is a lawyer correct isn't that mm-hmm. yeah and, she, um, so, and she's uh, in distress because she's having a terrible breakup, it seems like. So I'm going to say it now so I can get out of the way, but I'll keep bringing it up throughout the movie. So my takeaway rewatching and revisiting this movie was, um, you know, it's weird because I think obviously a lot of attention in this movie is the fact that it has three comic superstars, right? John Candy, Chevy Chase, and Dan Aykroyd. I think Demi Moore gives maybe the best comedic performance in this movie. I was really, really impressed with her in this. Yeah, like, like, like it's. I guess we'll kind of get into it as the movie goes along. But I thought she was great because she kind of floats in between kind of being this manic personality that you expect to see in a kind of a a classic, uh, you know, kind of farce of a movie. And there's also other mm-hmm. scenes where she actually does a good job, kind of playing the straight man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess when I say best comedic performance, maybe I, like obviously Dan Aykroyd is doing pretty great comedic stuff in this. But yeah. but yeah, she's like in terms of her reaction shots, like how she has to. You know, she very much is our, our her and Chevy Chase are our introduction into all this oddness, and she just plays it so well. And especially, you know, this is her coming right off of Ghost. Mm-hmm. The fact that she decided to follow that mega successful movie with this um, is pretty interesting. But I think she, I think she comes out of this uh, pretty squeaky clean. You know, whatever else, we, again, whatever else you might think about the movie, she is certainly. I mean, she's beautiful. She's funny. And you said she does a really nice job with some of the straight stuff, too. Yeah, there's a commentary track uh, from a pop culture historian. I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name uh, on this disc. And the guy the guy really knows his stuff. He does a lot of great insights. And he actually brings that up. And he, and he says they got kind of lucky in terms of Ghost was actually released uh, during the production of this film. So mm-hmm. not that it mattered because <laughs> this film did yeah. not capitalize in any way at the box office. But I was watching this and it really made me think about like what we kind of lost when Hollywood kind of, and I don't know the whole story behind this, but obviously we got to a certain point where Hollywood kind of turned its back on Demi Moore a little bit, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. I know there's some you know issues about her maybe being like difficult and stuff too, but I mean, that's always, they just always throw that onto actresses, right? right? But 
um, yeah, I, I, she's, she's perfect in this. And, uh, you know, I mean, I even stuff to like, um, when she had her, like a, a brief little comeback in Charlie's angels too, I thought she was mm-hmm. awesome in that. So it's like, I'm always rooting for her to kind of come back and it never seems like it takes off as much as I'd like to see it. To, to kind of throw a little bit of a bone to the quote unquote difficult actresses out there, Trev, you know, you ever notice that, uh, actresses, no matter how beautiful, no matter how toned, how in shape, they always somehow get a little more difficult after they turn 40. Have you ever noticed yes. that? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's really, really interesting. But, uh, yeah, like, I love her, and, uh, like, like um, this is probably not a movie that you're as hot on as I am, but um, I'm a big fan of St. Elmo's Fire, and, like... Oh, like, that's a good movie. Yeah, yeah like, like, her role in that, she kind of plays the... The girl who's kind of having the quarter life crisis at that point in time, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously is having some drug issues in the film, and yeah. uh, ever since that point, and, and and it's kind of funny too. I was thinking about this, Trev. Um, she was one of the few people that was really, you know, booking kind of major mo- movies in her early twenties, and as far as I can tell. I don't ever remember her playing a high school student. She kind of just jumped straight to college and afterwards, like type roles. She didn't have to go through the whole high school, yep. you know. Uh, you know, even Jennifer Jason Lee had a bunch of high school roles at the time. But you know, the interesting bit of trivia about her too, right? That she is the she's actually on the poster for "I Spit on Your Grave." Mm. Did you know I, that? I did not know the no. classic poster of "I Spit on Your Grave." That's her. That's that's really? her body, uh, her butt, right there on that poster. Yeah, she talked about it. To, I'm not sure if people knew it before, but it was uh, she uh, a couple of years ago. She published an autobiography, mm. and uh, that was one of the big takeaways people had in that. And she revealed that she was the uh, the model for that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's funny because uh, the historian guy was saying that with her biography, this is one of the few films she didn't touch upon. And, uh, by, by accounts of like other people in the, in the cast and some things, there was some of the interviews on the disc, like she seemed like she got along really well and like, was really like helpful to other people in the cast and whatever. So well, for, yeah, from what I've understood, from what I've read, Dan Aykroyd loved her because he said yeah. she came to set ready to like offer her like, ex- like expertise and suggestions on framing shots. This, this was his first time directing. He didn't really want to direct this, Yeah, so. but he said that she was very helpful in that. Although I have also read, I'm sure you as well, that. She apparently, and this is not surprising, we're going to talk about this, she had a little bit more difficult time with Chevy Chase. She apparently was not great with her. Which which, which is weird. (laughs) Like, I didn't want to turn this show into a thing of slamming Chevy Chase, because I feel like... No, but we're going to have to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's been done to death on just any, everywhere. But what's what's kind of weird, too, is, like, some people on the cast uh, had great experiences with Chevy. Mm-hmm. So it kind of seems like it's like a person to person thing. Like you... it is. Yeah. It's, it's, I was just listening to this talk. I was listening to another podcast talking about Chevy Chase. And they're saying how there's, there's all these stories about him being like so difficult and stuff. And then somebody else heard a story to where somebody on the crew, their sister or somebody was like a huge Chevy Chase fan. And they're like, could could I, she's on the phone. Could you talk to her? And he took the phone and spent like 45 minutes just talking to this, to this random crew member's sister. And it was like great with her, you know? So I think yeah. it's, you never know with him. And I think, I've never heard, to his credit, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw him a lot of credit in this too, because I actually think he's goodness as well. I've heard people say this seems like a detached performance from him, but oh. I don't necessarily agree. Um, no. But I, I think like any story you ever hear about him being difficult is only in relation to other creative types. Yeah, I've, He's not one of those ones you hear about being like a dick with fans or anything. You know, right. it seems like, and that's, that's probably even worse. I think he just has, a, I think he's very, maybe to his detriment sometimes, very sure of himself and not willing to uh, collaborate in the best ways, but I don't think necessarily he's a horrible human being. Right. I mean, I'm sure he's probably had his moments over the years. The guy's had a 45 year career. There's probably some Mm -hmm. moments where he was just cranky or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, like uh, we, I guess we should mention too, that the, the kind of sidekicks who tag along 
on yep. this this little ride. Um, you have Ronaldo. They're like a Brazilian couple, and, and in my mind, I always thought they were married, but it turns out they're actually brother and sister. So mm-hmm. you have the character of Ronaldo played by a. Uh, uh, Bertilla Damas, and I can't, I can't remember his character name, but the great, great Taylor Negron. Awesome. Uh, no, just one of those actors you're always so happy to see pop up. Oh, I, I seriously loved him as a kid, and, and I, in the movies I remember loving him. It's it's so weird, Trev, when I rewatched him. I didn't realize he had, like, one scene. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, no, like, yeah like, you, were, you remember him for all these, like, tiny roles. But, yeah. Uh, so great, and it's, it's unfortunate we lost him way too yeah. early. yeah. And it just, uh, yeah, I mean, just something about him. He always stood out. Like, I loved him as, the, of course, the pizza delivery guy in Fast Times. I loved him as the mailman in Better Off Dead. Um, yeah, that's that's my favorite, probably. Well, this, and this is, like, actually one of his better roles. He's in this yeah. quite a bit, and he's, you know, got a lot of good moments in this. Yeah. And uh, the lady who uh, plays uh, Renata uh, Bertillo Damas, she actually did a interview on the disc, and she was one of the people who uh, Chevy Chase, like, really kind of took her under her wing, uh, or under his wing, I should say. And uh, went as far as making sure, like, they gave her good lighting, they, you know, just, like, like, all kinds of stuff, like, and mm-hmm. she was saying, like, he was actually, like, he seemed pretty personable on the set, that, like, she said he would come in and actually do his shtick of falling down in front of everybody, like, to make the crew laugh and all that, so I was actually surprised so that, to hear that. That's the thing I wanted to ask you, so here's my thought on this, because as I just mentioned, you'll see a lot of reviews for this film that say, oh, this is, like, a boring Chevy Chase performance, or it's not as strong as his other ones. Do you think that's simply because he's doing, and this is you know a testament to what this film is, this is like a, this is going to sound weird, but this is a fairly subdued comedic performance from him. It's not as like, this is not Clark Griswold, right? He has right. to actually also play kind of the straightness of the insanity of the situation they end up in. So I think, you know, he is funny in this, but it's not quite the Chevy Chase performance you're used to seeing in a goofier movie. And I think that's why people have a hard time seeing that he's actually doing decent work in this. I think he's actually a really good, like leading man in this movie. I'm going to double, I'm going to triple down on that, Trev, and uh, maybe this is just because, you know, I just watched this, you know, for the first time in a long time in, you know, recent days, and uh, and I, I've always been a Chevy Chase fan and all that, but um, I'll be honest, like, this is probably my favorite Chevy Chase role, because as much as I loved the uh, vacation movies as a kid, there's a part of me that, like, I always liked uh clark griswold but like he becomes such a fucking buffoon as the movies <laughs> progress yeah. that it's almost like i don't know i don't know how to say it it, 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 it just there, there's not a lot of whatever like like i think the you know and i don't know how much was scripted how much was ad-libbed or whatever but i he had me laughing in this movie like big time mm-hmm. and, and like i thought the way i thought he was brilliant enough to realize that like what Aykroyd and Candy and some of the other people were doing were so was so big in this movie that he was kind of like 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 to me this is almost like his Jack Burton role like he's just so like like just a total smart ass and he's kind of dumb too as smart as he is he's kind of dumb like he kind of like falls into all the traps of like what happens you know what i mean it's, it's just like i don't know i thought it was like a really skillfully blended like character and and i didn't ever once get the uh impression at all that um he was like sleepwalking or halfway yeah. going through it at all I, i've seen the Chevy chase movies where he is sleepwalking mm-hmm. and, and and this isn't one of them i think he's he's totally in, in here and I, and I know what you mean about clark griswold that's i mean clark griswold is my favorite Chevy chase character mm-hmm. but you're right that especially by the time you get to like vegas vacation he's become a cartoon character right there's no realism to him anymore and this is a pretty realistic down-to-earth character um just as you said the, the humor comes from 
how kind of sarcastic he is and how quick-witted uh, he is in some moments. And I think Chevy Chase and kind of being the original one to kind of break out of SNL and go do movies and stuff, I think in, the, in this movie suits him better than even some other ones. I think Chevy Chase, kind of that appeal is that, like, especially for, like, the old... Mo- like, now there's comedians, Trev, that both male and female, that are look like supermodels and they're funny. You know what I mean? But back then, it was very rare to find an even halfway decent-looking guy, halfway charming guy that did comedy shit. And I, th- I think Chevy Chase went from SNL to that leading man role, like, so well. And, and like, like I, th- I think he kind of pulls it off here. Like, he's half, like, goofball. But, you know, he's dressed nice. He's not, like, a nimcompoop. You know what I mean? Like, like you could yeah. actually believe that, that, you know, with the character he's playing that, you know. I mean, let's be honest. The whole movie, he's going on this road trip helping uh, Demi more because he's, he's trying to get with her, you know, in a romantic sense. And, like, I you, like I don't think they would be an out-of-place couple, you know, if, if they were to no, be yeah. a couple. And as to what you were saying, I think you buy him even, even immediately in, in the whole introduction part of the film. You do buy him as this, like, financial expert and everything. Like, he's right. definitely he, – this this feels like a real character. Um, this is one of the moments that's – this is a great Taylor Negron moment where he's convincing Chevy Chase to try to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> evade the cop. He's like, you know, this is a provincial cop. Come on. You can you can, you can lose him. And, what, yeah, what I thought was great about this is, you know, because they're in this kind of hotshot BMW car. And uh, he's trying to tell him, oh, you know, you can outrun this shitty police car and all this kind of stuff. And he's kind of, like, challenging his manhood – in front of Demi Moore, and then, like that kind of seems why Chevy kind of takes the bait a little bit, and mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, it, it, like I like the the actual um, you know subtlety or, or you know interplay with the reactions of Demi Moore. You can tell she actually doesn't want him to try to outspeed the cops. She's just right. like, "What the fuck are you doing? This is like stupid." You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Also, not you know for like a goofy little comedy like this. Not that this is like an amazing car chase or anything, but mm-hmm. this, this sequence right here where they end up on this little road of ice trucks, fairly decent action for yeah. like a movie like this. You know, for I mean, you know, again, Dean Cundy uh, working his magic here, but some really nice uh, kind of choreography in these moments and just kind of actually a little brief, exciting scene. And, and um, you know, just everything from yeah, obviously like the shots from outside the car or second unit. The, the shots inside the car, um, you know, or the principal actors in, like, you know, cut to close-ups or facial reactions. Like, this is, like you said, like, like you wouldn't mistake this for the downtown San Francisco chasing in The Rock. But it's it, no. it, it actually, for a, a first-time director, like you said, with Aykroyd and stuff, it, it, it kind of, like, this was the era where, I'm not saying all studio movies were good, but it kind of reminds me of um, the era when pretty much most big budget studio movies were competent if you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah maybe he uh maybe directing this sequence he just locked back and remembered all the uh the, the famous chase scene from blues brothers and right. was able to use some of that yeah because we, like we were saying Ackroyd didn't really want to direct the movie he just wanted to make the movie you know the yeah. concept and stuff and uh it, from what i was kind of like hearing and reading was it was pretty much all his like usual suspects were just busy at the time like of directors that he liked to work well, with. Well, I know Landis hated the script. I know he turned yeah. it down. And then there were some other directors who, yeah, they were interested, but they couldn't do it. And basically, the studio, it sounded to me like the studio fairly pressured Ackroyd into just directing it. They were like, right. well, we'll do this, but we want you to direct so we can kind of have that as the one of the pulls of it. He's like, okay, if that's what's going to take it to get it made, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. Because originally he wanted to star in the Chevy Chase role and right. play the, you know, and, and I actually would really be intrigued by that version of the movie. But at the same time, mm-hmm. if you can have both of them, you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like and he still got to do a dual role. So, yeah. I mean, you know. yeah. Instead of a triple role or whatever. <laughs> now, I want to ask you, I mean, we haven't even seen Dan Aykroyd in this movie, but we're talking about the different roles he plays. 
Was there any part of you, Trev? Because I kind of felt it. Whereas I wish he would have like uh, kind of showed up, uh, kind of sans makeup and had like a third role, or even if it was just brief. Where you know what I mean? Like I, I wanted to see. It's kind of weird, actor. right? Because you always have that like kind of that rule of threes in mm-hmm. comedy, and the fact that him and both uh, John Candy have played two roles, you keep waiting for them both to maybe show up as one more. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, with Ackroyd in particular, I think you're right. I think there's a couple other characters in this that maybe could have been him. And like you said, I think. There is an interesting version of this film where he's playing the Chevy Chase part. But I will say, and this is no knock against Dan Aykroyd, who I also like and is also kind of a strange fellow. And obviously yeah. this film is a testament to that. But I don't know that Aykroyd could have played this character as well as Chevy Chase. Like, I don't know if he would have been as um, as likable in the role. I know it's, people are like, you're saying a Chevy Chase character is likable? But yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you're talking about. And I, I think Aykroyd always has this kind of, this level of more detached kind of, um, I don't know. I, I, I guess that's strange to say because... Cherry Chase is, kind of does this a lot too, but I just feel like it would have a totally different vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, when, speaking of Chevy Chase, uh, the the one thing that I kind of like because because like we said, I was kind of like like cognizant that this was a 1991 film when I was watching it, and not the 80s, not the 70s. I kind of realized, like, even as the years went on, like Chevy Chase always kind of had like the schmuck haircut. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, is that, was that like an okay haircut back then? But yeah. yeah, like, I, I think it was kind of acceptable. Just, you know, just kind of have your hair all around, be the same length, put a slight part in it, you know, just kind of, you know, brushed over your your forehead a little bit like that, but, you know, not really. And it really is the only haircut he had in his entire Yeah. Program. And it's, it's, it's definitely, like, a little bit longer when he was younger, but, like, yeah, from SNL on, like, you know. Until, like, obviously he became an old man and his, his appearance changed. Uh, but, yeah, like, all through his 20s, 30s, 40s, you know. Well, I'd say, that's, I'd say it's still the haircut he has. It's just different because he's balding on top. Right, it's, right. Because, I mean. He's gone white. But, yeah. yeah, I didn't even look it up. How old is Chevy Chase? Is he, is he even in his 70s now? I would think he's probably in his 70s, yeah. 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 Speaking of hair also, so, like, Demi Moore, definitely one of the actresses that kind of popularized, like, the short hair on women, yeah. you know, at this time. And I think, like. The, I'm not a huge fan of like the the short hair because she has in Ghost, but man, I love her hair in this. I think it just looks she looks so cool, and I you know to, to me like that kind of I still like really like that kind of haircut. I think it, maybe it's just because I had such a crush on her growing up. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know about you, Trev, but to me, even as a kid, what was kind of iconic about uh, about uh, Demi Moore was um she was young, but she kind of had that raspy voice. Yeah. That always caught my attention. Like I'm tr- now we're getting our, our first look at how just crazy like the production design yeah. of this film is and, and uh you know this entire like drive into the judge's house how bizarre it is and like you know you have like the collection of like the old junk like the the lawn jockeys the the swans all kinds of things just everywhere and it's just like it's really amazing that like there's like miles and miles of this driveway that's just filled with junk and it's like obviously a big part of it is um you know the uh, the fact that this guy's supposed to be over a hundred years old and he's been ruling mm-hmm. this town forever, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of weird shit. Like I even I thought about taking a photo of it and reading it, but it, you, you, the shot was you couldn't read it all. But that when they go over that bridge, there's like a a wooden cutout of an angel, and if you pause it, Trev, it's like has this broken. And it says, "Hey, this is a message for hey you guys. This this uh, village, uh, no bad people, no no thieves, no this, no that." So it's like from the very beginning, it's like the subtle details, like like they literally raid it for the production of this movie, like junkyards from hundreds of miles away to uh, come bring in all this shit and just you yeah. know create a whole world. Now. What did you think, Trev? I didn't realize 
until doing some research. Did you know what a Shire Reeve is? I do not know. So it basically, I thought it was just, I was like, is this some Lord of the Rings shit? Like, what is <laughs> Like, it just sounded so old-timey and fake. But it actually is legit old-timey. It actually is uh, basically what, what we nowadays we would call a justice of the peace. That's what they called them back then, back in, a, actually, the feudal times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shire Reeve was like the local judge or whatever. Look at how incredible this like production design is, though. Like how this is the thing about this film. So this is something I'm going to kind of bring up a, a few times. This where I am surprised this is not a bigger cult commodity nowadays, yeah. in particular with horror fans. Now, obviously, you know this is billed sometimes as a horror comedy. It's much more on the comedy end. Although we do know that, and I'm sure you read this too. Go, I haven't listened to the commentary, so maybe he talked about this as well. But apparently, this was originally a little darker and more yeah. violent, and it was cut down to PG-13. Um, I would, I would definitely love. To, apparently, I'm sure that footage doesn't exist anymore. But boy, I would love to right. see the more horror-driven version of this. But I'm just surprised because this is, there's obviously it's the characters are comedic, but this is a very creepy setting, and right. this really does work on a certain creep level. The same way like Texas Chainsaw Massacre does, the same way uh, House of Thousand Corpses does. Now, obviously, I'm not saying all those movies are equal in quality, but I'm saying that notion of ending up somewhere where you just have no idea what's going on and just surrounded by complete weirdos in a very disgusting, bizarre place. This is the thing. As a kid watching this, there was definitely a part of me that couldn't quite figure this movie out, but knew that what I was responding to was how this was aiming for that Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe, right? But just in a more broadly comedic sense. And you know what's funny is it is very TCM, but uh, but they, they kind of like got the original inspiration, uh, Dan Aykroyd and his brother and their friend, from going to a screening of Hellraiser. Yep. And uh, I thought I thought that was funny because like I was almost like I mean they weren't trying to like rip anything off but I was like imagine if there was almost some Hellraiser esque elements into this <laughs> like you know what I mean now again a great reveal the judges they don't really show him at first he's kind of hidden behind a stack of books and whatnot mm-hmm. John Candy you, you gotta love John Candy's hair here obviously it's a yeah. prosthetic but it but it's yeah. it, it just it's such a great look for him. A nice, like, you know, uh, not uh, not that I'm going to act like this is, like, the most amazing screenplay or anything. Yeah. But you do, uh, earlier on, you did have a nice sense of, like, what to come with John Candy's character. Because ultimately, you're already getting an idea that he's not too um, bad of a person. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's willing to overlook that entire car chase, right? Right. Like, not even tell the Shireev that that happened. That's that's pretty impressive. You know? Yeah. Like, he's, like, I always got the feeling, especially when you learn a little bit more of his character later... I always got the impression that he he's trying to make it sound like their infraction, make it sound as light as possible, so that yeah. you know hopefully they can actually survive. You know what I mean? Yeah, you definitely get the sense that he does not like seeing people have to go through like the torture and and death here. Right. He's trying to do his best to to help everybody. But yeah, this the and obviously too, I guess we should talk about too the, is this whole premise of kind of this scene what we're seeing right here. This is actually based on something real that happened to Dan mm-hmm. Aykroyd. He was yeah. on a, on a road trip and just uh, it was just a minor speeding ticket, right? Yeah, minor speeding ticket. And it was, was did he say it was like at three a.m. or something? Yeah, it was like two or three in the morning, and they yeah. were like, and the cop was like, "Oh, you got to go to court right now." And he's like, "Well, what do you mean? Like, just give me a ticket? No, you you have to go to the judge." So he went before this this really elderly old lady judge, uh, and uh, yeah, like he kind of just like played along, and like he just ended up having tea with the lady, and he was there for like three or four hours. <laughs> So I guess we should just talk about the judge here now. It's um, he's more than just a judge. Like as we find out, he really kind of rules his family. I guess 
it uh, rules this whole local town, um, this mining town that was kind of stripped and underneath the ground. It's very volatile. There's uh, coal fires and obviously that place mm-hmm. later. But um, yeah, it's like this kind of like kangaroo court. Um, how would you describe the judge? Um, boy, what a what an interesting character, right? Because he is. I don't want to say scary, but obviously there's mm-hmm. a level of, you don't want to end up in this guy's court. You would definitely feel uncomfortable right away. Right. But he's obviously pretty broadly comedic. Um, it's a good, to me, this is a good comedic version of a horror character. Um, you know, because we're going to get into some, like, kind of some really disgusting stuff with him later uh, in terms of like, you know, even more of the prosthetic work and everything. Yeah. But it still feels like this feels like a, a character that comes from like an SNL performer. You know, it's right. just uh, the kind of broad comedic performance that you would expect here. Yeah, because as a kid, like, I kind of, you know, I I mean, SNL started before I was born, but uh, I was kind of, you know, when I was kind of, like, first kind of aware of shit and seeing movies and going to see movies with my mom and dad, I I really got to see that whole boom of, like, like, I even remember going to see, like, Neighbors in the theater, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I just remember that whole boom of SNL performance, so, like, to me, like, that's why I'm still kind of an SNL fan to this day, is just like to me, like that's where the comedy people of um, you know the kind of popular U.S. culture comes from, and like I, you know, like obviously Belushi had some good movies, Ackroyd's had a lot of good movies, Chevy Chase had a lot of good movies, other people too, as along the way, and I kind, I kind of sucks that like nobody really makes those like you know Lauren Michaels used to produce a lot of them for the people that were on the cast in the '90s. Like I miss that yeah. whole SNL movie thing. You know what I mean? It is weird, right? Especially in an era where um, Netflix gives Adam Sandler so much money to do yeah. like his projects. It's I've heard people ask like, why can't they take some money like that and just throw it to other like fresh off SNL performers and just yeah. ask them to do what we used to see in the '90s, right? Where you'd take a performer and just give them like a character-based movie. You yeah. know, that's how Adam Sandler kind of made his name with movies like Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore and The Water Boy. Why isn't there a version of that for like Bill Hader? Why is there not a Jason Sudeikis character-driven film? You know, all these like SNL people now, we just don't get that same. It's kind of like they all head into either doing their own shows, um, or they kind of try to jump right into more dramatic work. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's too bad. The the one that kind of made me and like I do remember Neighbors, and I, re- I remember at the time Neighbors to me seemed like like the like now I look back and oh it's like it's not as like you know weird as I remember, but it's a pretty yeah. weird movie. But um, I remember watching that as a kid, and I always got the feeling that it, like this is like there's something different about this movie. This movie is more like a bad dream than it is like a movie. You know what I mean? Because like Belushi, yeah, I haven't seen it in years, but that's another one yeah. I remember as being kind of like a dark comedy, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, but the but the one that I was like really the fan of Trev, and I'm sure a lot of it went over my head, like kind of half understood it. But I loved. I still remember going to say I love Doctor Detroit, where mm. um, uh, Ackroyd's just a regular guy who has to impersonate this famous pimp, Doctor Detroit, and he kind of he kind of has this fake claw hand, and he's got the pimp. So like to me, Doctor Detroit, like I didn't realize it was just like an over the top pimp caricature. Like to me, Doctor Detroit was like a alter ego superhero type thing. <laughs> Well, this thing, you were asking me how I describe the judge, you will say, well, I guess we probably, probably should say something about uh, good old uh, Daniel Baldwin here. But, yeah, uh, the, uh, who at one time was the most controversial Baldwin. Now, uh, <laughs> now I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that's, uh, I think he's easily been surpassed at this point, especially in the last few weeks, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, briefly going, because we'll still have an opportunity to talk about Daniel Baldwin. Going back to the judge, 
there's just such a clear glee in Aykroyd's performance. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how, for someone who is this obviously very talented comedic performer, I was thinking back on a, a lot of his other films, and he didn't get the opportunity to do this that often, you know, play a right. character so outrageous and, like, under a full, like, makeup job. He's pretty much, you know, just himself in most of his movies. So I think that's kind of exciting, too, to see here he plays two really bizarre, you know, prosthetic-driven characters. And you realize that, oh, this could have been, like, a whole side thing for him if people were kind of more willing to, to dive into that. Right, after you see like how right. effective he is in this. Well, one of my favorite Aykroyd performances is um, kind of the supporting character he plays in a gross point blank. Like mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I love the kind He's of great in that, yeah. yeah, popcorn. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like uh, I I don't know, like I just I'm a, I just always been an Aykroyd fan, and uh, I mean obviously I love Chevy Chase and other guys too, but like to the point where like. Whenever I watch Ghostbusters, I think Aykroyd's actually my favorite, even though he's kind of one of the ones... I mean, other than Ernie Hudson, who's like the complete straight man of Ghostbusters, I think Aykroyd, you know, he he kind of... There's a lot of scenes where Ramus kind of gets to steal it with the Egon weirdness, and definitely Murray's just kind of shooting all over the place, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, because in recent years, it's been easy for Aykroyd to become kind of a punchline to people, yeah. because he is, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's fairly... I don't want to say he's crazy, but he's got a lot of weird ideas, right? And yeah. you, you learn more about the various ideas he had for Ghostbusters sequels. And even the fact that one thing that's very true of Dan Aykroyd is he seems like someone who kind of overcomplicates a lot of his ideas and premises. Yeah. So, like, the fact that Ghostbusters originally his conception was a space film, right? So that right. outer space and then busting Ghostbusters. Like, why? why? Why that extra bit? You don't need that, right? How people kind of talked him into downplaying it to just having it be, you know, Exterminators in New York, which is obviously much better. But... You know, as much as I used to kind of laugh about that, you think about how, oh, he's the he's one of the reasons um, Ghostbusters 3 never kind of happened because he was coming up with just these ridiculous ideas for it. Ghostbusters go to hell and things like this, you know. I've come around to being like, that's what I just love about Dan Aykroyd. It's, yeah. He's just so confident in how insane his ideas are. And he, is, he has no problem, like, going on talk shows and talking about his belief in ancient aliens, right? And right. crystal skulls. And he's just, like, very... And then you look at a film like this, and this is probably the, the most Dan Aykroyd movie, right? This is, like... Yeah. Everything that's strange about him is on screen here. But you, but you know what, too, is, like... Um, is what everybody says is, like, you know, even even Chevy Chase did the little interview. Like, like everybody says, like, Aykroyd is, like, the ultimate collaborator. He will collaborate mm -hmm. with you. He wants to, you know be you know he wants input he wants so like i th i think he's like the greatest guy to kind of get the ball rolling on a film premise but then you just need an, another kind of personality to kind of rein some stuff in and modify it and you know so it doesn't go off the rails because it's kind of funny because like we all take it for granted now because ghostbusters is a brand name trev and a logo and all that kind of thing but ghostbusters is especially for 1984 whenever it came out it's a fairly ambitious concept for a comedy film Oh yeah, for sure. I get, we got to talk about the bone stripper here, uh, yeah. Daniel Baldwin, who's kind of like a junior mafioso guy, kind of in this the way they kind of portray it. Him and his crew, you know, they uh, they try to bribe uh, their way out of it. Or actually, he, he well, actually Chevy Chase tried to bribe his way out of it, but he, they actually he tried to threaten John Candy with a gun, so they had to take him in. They had lots of coke, so the the judge put him through the bone stripper, which is a roller coaster. Who then who then like kind of hits a stop, you fall out onto a conveyor belt, and then a giant like carnival type ride, but it's full of pistons that tear you apart and just spit yeah. your bones out. Although it is one of the first kind of concessions to, I, there's a part of me that always wishes like the bones would come out a little like nastier looking. They come right. out just like pure white, you know. But uh, yeah, I definitely remember that. And you know, what, something I one thing I never noticed until this recent watch. This is the kind of thing that probably went over my head as a kid, or just didn't pick up in the detail. 
there was a moment earlier when they first introduced the judge where they mentioned that his degree is in engineering. And I was like, oh, once you know that little bit, this all makes sense. Like right. this character designed the bone stripper. He designed the little, um, you know, uh, train thing we're about to see on the table. So like all these like crazy contraptions, that's because that's kind of his hobby, right? Or like what he went to school for is the, is making these kind of bizarre inventions. Well, I was going to ask you, like, like uh, viewing this film again with all the little like gadgets and weird things and, you know, the things that entertain him that he has built in this house is like, I took him to be like almost like a Willy Wonka, like an evil Willy. Well, I guess Willy Wonka is evil in a way, but yeah. even more, he, he, like a evil Willy. I gotta say, this cracked me up. The oil kind of spigot thing and the giant yeah, and can of Hawaiian punch. punch. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the scene. Like, I think if you just watch Demi Moore during this entire scene, like yeah. her expressions and how she plays this is all fantastic. She's just she's doing she's doing great work here. She's definitely not, um, you know, for you said coming off of a huge film and kind of at the, like one of the apex of her career, she doesn't think this material is below her. She's trying to, she's diving into this with the same enthusiasm as, as a lot of the other, like more kind of seasoned comedic performers. I mean, I got to say if, you know, for, I mean, she was definitely a movie star at this point, but I would think anybody, you know, at this time period, I would say there still was a nice little glow on the kind of SNL guys, you know, like, you know, this, this isn't that many years after Ghostbusters and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, I would think being in a movie with Dan Aykroyd and um, Chevy Chase, a comedy, would seem like an appeasing thing for somebody. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like the fact that the movie was a box office bomb and it wasn't as well-beloved as, like, Ghostbusters was and all that kind of thing. I, I think that's why for people in retrospect to be like, why would Demi Moore do this piece of shit? But, yeah. you know, at the time. So now we have the John Candy dual role. You wanted to talk about this trip? <laughs> Well, actually, I do want to talk about it because I think this, okay, so there's an, obviously an argument that this is, like, easy, right? Well, mm -hmm. just put a big guy in a dress and, like, that'll be instant laughs. And we even, and I know that the story of this is Dan Aykroyd just one day thought about this, the idea of John Candy and drag, couldn't stop laughing. It was like, I got to put that into a movie. But I will say, like, this is a testament to how great John Candy is for this, what's ultimately this, like, silent performance and it just being, like, an obvious joke. I really think he is actually quite funny as like that character, right? the, the way he plays yeah. it, the mannerisms, the expressions, he's doing a really nice job of actually taking what could just be, Oh, it's funny. Cause it's John Candy drag, but it's a, it's a really nice, like silent comedic performance. Yeah. It's really like, and I, you know, when, when she came on screen, I was like, Oh, how are they going to get around the voice? But then they just write in that she's mute. So thankfully mm -hmm. he doesn't have to, you know, put on a fake girl's voice. So the fact that he didn't have to really speak like in the makeup job, like, like it's weird, but like I kept thinking I was looking at a woman. It's weird throughout the film. Like I'm never like, it's like, yeah, obviously it's John Candy, but it's like, I always felt like I was watching a female character in the film and not a guy that's supposed to be in drag type thing. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's nice to send there because the other candy character, the cop, you know, actually is more of a straight man in this. He's not really that comedic of a character, but that also he does it so well. Again, this is one of the movies you watch and you just think of, uh, I mean, this is true of pretty much any John Candy movie, but you watch this and just you're reminded of what a talent we lost there. Um, yeah. To where this, even in a smaller, you know, two smaller roles in this still can like steal a scene very easily. Yeah, like it, this is kind of a stupid thing to bring up, Trev, but like uh, we're watching this uh, the other day. I was like, holy shit, this is just a concept I never thought about in, in probably 20, 30 years. But ants on a log. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> If people don't know, Ants on a Log, is a, there was a snack for kids that, I mean, it was probably popular in the 50s and 60s, but I remember it was big when I was a kid in the 80s, where you take a stalk of celery, fill it up with peanut butter, and then put raisins on top to make it look like ants crawling on a log. Mm. I thought that was a genius comedic thing to bring up. <laughs> Just a weird thing to bring up in a comedy film. 
Yeah. Yeah, this whole nursing is, even this is that misdirect where they come out and they think they're serving dog and it turns out to be hot dogs, but they're yeah. the most like disgusting looking hot dogs. Also, yeah, they're like gray. They're yeah. like, they're like almost like, um, they're almost like Italian sausage looking, but they look almost like still raw. Like they're, they're very, like I'm a hot dog guy, Trev, and I'll eat anything, mm-hmm. brats, mets, but to me, these are fucking disgusting. Now, this part speaks to that idea of Dan Aykroyd as like a collaborator, because I know they said this whole idea of the train and the table, that's something someone on set suggested. And they're just like, all right, well, let's do that. Let's build it and like do it. You know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't necessarily an idea in the original script. So um, he was like very willing to take, probably because they're trying to just populate this insane world. So give me any ideas you have for that. Yeah, I was going to say the set design and just everything is just so ingenious in this film. And like, like even stupid shit like this train table that brings the condiments around for the hot dogs. This shot, I mean, obviously it's in the trailers and everything, but this shot when the old judge is trying to eat the hot dog and he's all like fumbling and it's you got ketchup and mustard and everything squirting and everything, it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah, that's good, gross comment. Now we gotta talk about this. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Chevy Chase looks at the judge and his nose is suddenly a penis nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think they like slipped that by because I want to say that might have even been in some trailers or something. I think they slipped that by by like just trying to not like have anybody like verbalize what it was. You know, what well, I mean? it's funny because this was a Mandela effect thing for me. So as yeah. I said, I hadn't watched this movie in a long time. And, and in my memory, because that obviously that scene is so memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had the sequence later where we see that, you know, that entire like from his like nose down to his upper lip is like a prosthetic he has on. Right. right? In my head, I always remember now from that shot that, oh, he's made his nose out of a penis. Like, that's right. the weird thing about the character. But then it's like, then you rewatch the movie, you're like, oh, no, that's not the case. It's just this one little brief, bizarre fantasy of Chevy Chase. And it's right. just like, well, that makes it even weirder. Like, why would he think that necessarily? But whatever, it's a, it's a great little visual gag. See, my Mandela effect was when I watched the first time and, you know, whatever it was, was I thought he was more supernatural than he really is. And I thought his, his nose actually turned into that. It's not seeing it later that i realized oh that's just Ch- what chevy chase thinks it looks like because his, his mm-hmm. nose does have that divot in the end kind of yeah you know but yeah like that was insane so like you know, go ahead trev i was just gonna say it's funny because like everyone is so freaked out by this whole like the train and everything and i'm just thinking like i would actually think this was so funny and like yeah. cool. like i feel like i would i would like almost start getting along with this family because i just think you know obviously the food looks disgusting but the idea of a train in your dinner table that brings condiments around that's cool there's no there's no there's nothing there's nothing scary about that or creepy i just think that's a neat idea i would almost be like obviously they're creeped out because they fell through a trap door in the, in the court and you know into a basement or whatever but now they're having dinner i would actually have more hope that i would survive seeing the train be like oh maybe you know this this isn't as insidious as i thought maybe this is a good time to talk because this is i know there's a moment coming up soon here or maybe oh maybe it's a little later but since you know we have a moment here we want to talk about uh this blu-ray and yeah. uh, <laughs> the audio oh, issues oh. so we are both watching the brand new shout factory um shout select blu-ray of yeah. nothing but scrolls. so first of all i do want to say is it strange to you that this was not a Scream Factory release? I think this has got enough horror elements that it feels like it should be one of those instead of Shout Select. It, it, you know, exactly, and they, they could have very easily done a, got an artist to paint a cover with the judge on it. It could have definitely mm-hmm. had that Scream Factory cover look to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But uh, so maybe not surprisingly, and that's what I want to talk about. Uh, this is a already controversial Blu-ray release, and, and I, Goat and I were talking about this before we started recording, but we both noticed it watching it. 
this Blu-ray, uh, I'm very excited to have this movie on Blu-ray now. I'm happy that it's getting, you know, some more attention and kind of coming back. But, boy, is the audio mix atrocious. It is. And, you know, we're waiting to see if Shout Factory will once again have to, uh, you know, will the pressure be high enough for them to once again issue replacement discs, which has been kind of a consistent problem for them over the last few years. Is it, st- yeah. is it still bizarre to you that this company has such a name that we've seen it, this pro- these problems so often with them? I mean, how many releases have they had in the last, like, decade that have required replacement discs? Uh, at least six that I can think of. And I have a couple of them that got the replacement discs. But, so I guess what we should talk about is... This uh, this movie comes with a or this Blu-ray, I should say, comes with the DTS HD Master Stereo soundtrack. Which, if anybody kind of collects older films on Blu-ray, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, even some movies that had a 5.1 sound mixes, I don't know, when they license them out, they end up with you just get these stereo sound mixes and stuff. But this one is it's very bizarre stereo sound mix because. The actual dialogue of the film jumps from speaker to speaker, doesn't it, Trev? Yeah, midline sometimes. Yeah, midline. So, like, like my setup, I have, like, your kind of normal 5.1 stereo surround, uh, whatever, uh, you know, stereo sound. Or no, not surround sound, I guess just to say. And I usually let my receiver upmix the stereo to surround, and it usually does a great job, keeps the the dialogue pretty much in the center channel and whatever. But this, like I like you said, like I had the dialogue jumping from in front of me to my surrounds in the back to the whatever, and and you were listening on a soundbar setup, and even in just the soundbar, you could hear it jumping from side to side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the soundbar was like very evident when it was doing that, and then on the special features. Um, the interviews themselves sound fine, but whenever they cut to like clips of the movie, it sounds like it's like being like it, it's like um, an old like fourth generation VHS dub or something. Right. It's, it's just a uh, just bizarre. And like this is the thing. It's I, this, this is what sucks because Shout Factory and Scream Factory, you know, uh, obviously one company, but they are kind of the go tos here in North America for genre fare and you know kind of pulling these more obscure movies and giving them these special editions. And I typically want to get excited whenever they announce a release, but now you always have to be kind of suspicious and wondering if uh should you wait to hear some reviews although luckily this one was cheap enough and yeah you know whatever like i'm not too if i don't get a replacement for this it's not the end of the world you can still watch the film but like another re- example is recently is i was very excited to uh finally have brotherhood of the wolf coming out on blu-ray yeah and i ended up not even getting it because i just read about how the subtitles that they have on their version are so terrible apparently instead of using like a previously existing subtitle track they ran the movie through some like computer program that automatically subtitles it. And people had screen grabs of comparing the, the new subtitles to the old ones, how a lot of the dialogue was overly simplified. And then there's certain sequences where it just says the subtitle actually says dialogue unintelligible, even though the previous versions <laughs> had the actual dialogue. Yeah, it's just like, are you kidding me? Like you can't even like, and, and that's one where maybe cause it's such a small niche release, they are obviously not even going to bother fixing that. So I was just like, yeah, I guess I'll just hold on to my DVD. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't know. And other companies are having problems, too, without, you know, going in a 20-minute spiel. Like, I've had some problems with it. But, but I will say it's, like, like the norm now is more for problems on 4K discs. Like, for the most mm-hmm. part, like, Blu-ray encoding and production has been, you know, it's been going on for 15 years now. It's just weird that we're ended up with these issues. If I had to guess, I would... Because, like I said, sometimes... Films that had 5.1 theatrical mixes uh, get turned into stereo for home releases to save money or whatever. Sometimes they can't. 
and I wonder if this was actually a stereo. This is just my theory. I don't know for sure because I haven't seen anybody else say it for sure. But I'm wondering if if the the thing they had was a, a surround mix and they tried to convert it down to stereo, and just mm-hmm. doing that somehow just screwed up what should be in the center channel of the dialogue or yeah. whatever. Because because. Because, you know, there's there's like some movies that don't upconvert from stereo to surround, I've noticed very well. And, but but, I, but I've but i never, like, like you'll have some dialogue leaking into the surround sounds, but I've never seen anything jump from speaker to speaker to speaker. Like you said, even mid-line, like there's, clearly was a mixing problem. People love to talk about things that were in movies a lot when you were a kid and kind of have like faded from yeah. pop culture. One is um, uh, like quicksand, right? How quicksand was uh-huh. like, used all the time and we don't see much of When's the last time you saw a movie that had the old eyeballs in the painting? Uh, oh, yeah. Just noticed there. It was great. Yeah. The eyeballs in Although quicksand did make a return in a recent film. I don't know if you remember, Trev. The Rise, uh, of, Rise Skywalker. of Skywalker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the level of screenwriting on display there. <laughs> So I would say this is almost like what you say, Trev, this is like the most kind of like oh, borderline Texas Chainsaw part of the film in terms of they're they're wandering through the dilapidated and scary mansion and finding weird shit and room to room. You know what I mean? Yeah. This, I, OK, this is the one with the bats. Right? Yeah, I yeah. The bats and all the bat shit. I love the next part, I think, is where there's actually like a crypt inside one of the rooms. Yeah. It's just like a closet. That's a crypt. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it's just like, and you look at this, all this had to be, like, this is almost like a Disneyland Haunted Mansion type vibe going on here with all these. The, this thing, like, where's, uh, where's uh, Universal to make a nothing but trouble maze for one of oh, Halloween Horror Nights? That would be amazing. What do you think of the, uh, like, narrative decision to kind of have Taylor Negron and his sister, like, duck out of the film as we just, you know, had just a few minutes ago, like... I kind yeah. of just wonder, like, why were they in the movie? I mean, obviously, I know what they're like. They're, the purpose is ultimately to resolve John Candy's character in a certain way, right. but it's just bizarre that you take them out of the equation so early. Well, I was going to ask you about this, Trev. Is is the the reading because they didn't really mention it on the commentary? The re, the material I read that said it was kind of like that there, that this was supposed to be an R-rated kind of more horror-centric thing, and mm-hmm. that there was kind of like. After shooting, the studio was like, "No, we want PG thirteen And they had they had like a like a short uh, film delay of when it was originally supposed to come out. It was only like two or three months they delayed it because they wanted to rework it in the editing to make it PG thirteen. But for to my knowledge, there was no reshoots. So I'm like, I'm like, where could that gore or just whatever more harder material? Like, what could it have been in? Because pretty much other than the Baldwin character group of people, like the the kind of obnoxious Italian people that show up and get killed. They're really, there's no victim. So, like, where where else could this have been? You know, that's what I wonder. I was wondering because, like, yeah, I, I agree that I didn't read about significant reshoots. It made me wonder if there was maybe more. Did they did they find victims? Right. Is that the thing that we saw? Because we obviously things were cut, and that's where yeah. I think there's probably missing footage, which unfortunately will probably just remain missing. No one's going to be searching for nothing but trouble. Uh, you know, this isn't. Uh, London after midnight or anything. Nobody's worried about tracking this down. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I would love to see it. And I would, I would just assume maybe there was bodies in the house. Cause we were talking about like, obviously the TCM or house of thousand corpses vibe. Couldn't you, boy, couldn't you see Rob Zombie? I bet you Rob Zombie likes this movie. I feel like this is a movie that he'd be like, all I, w- about. I was going to break out that shtick Trev, but I'll, I'll go ahead and do it anyway, even though I acknowledge it's sick. So I was going to kind of ambush you uh, during the court scene and say, 
say what, you know, Rob Zombie gets slammed for House of the Thousand Corpses being a direct ripoff of TCM. But after watching this, I think it's actually, a, in a lot of ways, more directly tied to Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> Imagine if Rob Zombie was solely influenced by this. I mean, even the shots of the tow truck here are just like in House of the Thousand Corpses. Maybe we'll get the remake and we know who will play the Demi Moore part, that's for sure. And by the way, I, I approve of that casting a thousand percent. But uh, yeah, it, the soundtrack will be the best when he does like the title song. Da, 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 da. Yeah, he's got a house and he's a judge. Valcavania, <laughs> yeah, baby, scream if you want it. Because <laughs> I want hot dogs. <laughs> I could definitely see like a Rob Zombie song called Valcavania, that's for sure. Yeah. We should mention too. We didn't bring it when you met. We talked about Vulcanvania, and I would assume you know this as well. Go, but Vulcanvania based on Centralia, which is the 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 real town in Pennsylvania that for decades now has had a a, a fire burning underneath it. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't, do you know? So you don't know about Centralia? No, no, no. Centralia is also the real life inspiration for Silent Hill. That's what Silent Hill is okay. based on. Okay. So it is an actual town in Pennsylvania where there was an explosion and a fire in the mines in the town, and they've never been able to put it out. And to this day, it's still burning. The town has been, um, the government has stepped in and said nobody can, like, move into the town or live there anymore. Wow. From what I've understood, like, I, I haven't checked up on it recently, but, like, the last time people were talking about this was probably, like, a decade or so ago. There were, like, two families who refused to move because they they couldn't force them to. Right. So even though it was kind of deemed, like, you know, it's a, it's a health hazard to be there, there were these two people that were still living in Centralia. But you can, like, you can kind of go by there, you can drive by it, but you're not supposed to go in there. Um, but you can find pictures of it online. So, yeah, just an interesting, that like, that exists in America somewhere, a town that just has this fire constantly burning under the town. And, uh, you know, if you live there too long, obviously, you could have serious health problems. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, halfway through a, um, a Silent Hill rewatch right now. Silent Hill, that's a good movie. Underrated yeah. movie, I think. Yeah, like uh, I liked it. Just other Christoph Gans. Yeah, <laughs> just just rewatching it, I was like, I was like, why is this movie two hours? <laughs> Silent yeah, Hill. Yeah, that's that's the long. only weakness of it is there's a lot of repetitive scenes in it. Mm-hmm. But creepy in a way that you don't typically expect to see in a uh, a video game based horror movie of that era. Right. Like it actually has some really effective kind of uh, you know nightmarish imagery. Yeah, I didn't mind, he he didn't make it, but like I didn't mind the sequel and I saw it in theaters, but that's kind of why I'm doing the rewatch, is uh, I recently got a copy of the second one, and I wanted to rewatch it, I was like, oh, it, like I didn't realize it actually is a direct sequel to the first one, so I'm like, let me rewatch the first one. Cause yeah, I, Sean Bean comes back, right? Yeah, yeah, he does, and then the girl is supposed to be like the same girl grown up, so I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll rewatch it, whatever. But uh, I know people hated the second one, but uh, I don't know. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a, a chance on the rewatch. Now, here, here's the judge unmasking. We got to talk about this. This looks great. This is like yeah. a, a, that, that visual. So there you go. This, now that, this is pure horror. Now the way Chevy Chase plays that is obviously quite funny. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the the judge takes off his hair. I mean, you know, no, no, no surprise there. He's supposed to be. I, I how old is he? Trev, hundred and eight, I think. Something. Yeah. 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 So I mean, he fought yeah. World War One. So. Yeah. So I mean, if you live that old, you probably wouldn't have like much hair, or whatever. But what, what did you think of the shape of his head? Like, I, is he supposed to be a mutant or like what? No, I don't take it. I, I just think, you know, he's got like that little bit of like dip in his head a little bit too. Yeah. But I never I took it that like, I don't know, maybe it's just that he's old or mm-hmm. um, obviously, you know, old and withered. Uh, could also be a byproduct of living in this town. As we said, we were just talking about how like right. what, does this, what does living in this town do to you necessarily? So I think that's part of it. I think that speaks to also um, 
two characters we'll have coming up soon, right? Like, why do those characters exist in this world? Uh, it might be a byproduct of what what are the potential health hazards of uh, reproducing in this town? Exactly. And he, what do you what do you make of taking the nose off? What was was that? Well, I love it. I, guess I think I, again, this is the most. This is the thing. As I said, when I was a kid, the moments that were speaking to me was going, okay, this is I, I, for the most part, it's a goofy comedy. But there are these horror elements in this. And I, I don't want to say this is this obviously wasn't the first horror comedy I ever saw. But certainly, you know, this is an early horror comedy for me. And kind of that understanding that like, oh, this Dan Aykroyd is playing with like the horror tropes I also love, but putting them into a more broadly comedic film. And yeah, when you're like, you know, behind a wall looking at a guy and he just pulls his nose off in front of you. Uh, that's actually pretty gross and pretty... Uh, you know, intense. So I, I like it. And I, I really like, I, I think that's a great makeup look on him with the hair off and a nose off. He really has this like kind of crypt keeper appearance that is really, really effective. Right. And I guess he also has a prosthetic leg. I'm guessing that was from the yeah. war. Yeah. Yeah. But I just wondered, did the nose fall off due to old age or is it a war, a facial war injury? I'm, cur- I'm curious. Leprosy. Who knows? Oh yeah. This, could, could this salvage yard is awesome too. Yeah. We should mention too there when they first came in at the beginning of the movie, like that awesome mat shot of like yeah. pretty yeah. much the junkyard goes on for miles and miles. Like it, like it almost reminds me of that in shot of from Dust of Dawn when you see the back of the the plate the junkyard and it's like actually oh, yeah, a that's awesome. temple or whatever. I wish more people did mat shots like still like. No, like I don't even know how to describe these guys, Trev. Like they're like human, or they're like adult babies, I guess. Mm-hmm. So we have the new characters uh, introduced here, because the movie's about three fourths of the way through, and we're still like kind of exploring, finding out these different characters that live in this mansion or around this mansion. In these guys' case, they're not a, they're not allowed in the house because like they're too nasty, they're too sloppy. This is a. Uh, these giant human babies. Uh, one is named Bobo, and the other one is Little Devil. Yeah. <laughs> and again, this is this is Dan Aykroyd's dual uh, yeah. performance. And this is again, this is not a character he even wanted to play. Uh, right. But he he could he found an actor to do the one and couldn't find anyone else willing to do the other one. So he's like, ah, I'll do it. But I heard that that was pretty tough for him to try to direct in this makeup, which you understand when you look at how involved it is and. Uh, you know, just how elaborate. Yeah, I don't know which character he was playing on the day. I'm guessing the judge, but the the day where they shot the digital underground scene, he actually passed out and he missed part of the shooting day. Somebody had to take over. But uh, a fun fact here: uh, the the other guy, uh, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think Ackroyd plays Bobo, and like they're kind of identical. Like these giant baby yeah. men, they look exactly the same. They have the same little tuft of hair on the top of their head. They're kind of like baby Huey types, I guess. Um, the other one, uh, I'm, I'm rem- forgetting his name a little bit. It's like John, uh, Valkic or something like that. He was actually somebody going, that, uh, Aykroyd knew for years and years, uh, going back to the second city days. And he was actually the guy, believe it or not, Trev, uh, he, he also was a good artist. So whenever Aykroyd was doing a pitch for a movie, he would kind of do the mock-up art and stuff that he actually designed uh, little devil here actually designed the Ghostbusters logo. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, those characters seem like they stepped out of like a Terry Gilliam movie or something. Mm-hmm. They definitely feel like they could be in Freaked, the Alex Winter film. <laughs> yes, uh, they, they definitely seem. Well, that's the thing. You, you say like they seem out of place in this, or it feels like that at first. But that's the thing. Like their their appearance in this just ultimately adds to the overall odd vibe of this. And this is what we're talking about now. We're definitely in the, the sequence or the uh, from this point on. When Go and I are talking at the beginning about how this is just such a strange movie, there's obviously already been a little of that, but 
you would not, you wouldn't see uh, Bobo and Little Devil in a studio movie nowadays. Right. I don't think <laughs> necessarily, unless it was a Rob Zombie movie. Again, very Rob Zombie esque. Dan Aykroyd did not realize he was uh, laying down the blueprint for Robert Zombie to uh, mm-hmm. perfect his cinema. Maybe going we should forward. get Dan Aykroyd to make a, a Halloween movie. Uh, well, I mean, compared to the, some of the other entries in the franchise, I don't think he would make it any worse. I, mean, I have honestly. to imagine he probably, in terms of the overall Halloween franchise, he probably loves the Call to Thorn stuff. That seems like yeah. it would speak to his sensibilities. I kind of like the Call to Thorn stuff. I kind of just wish it was done better, to be honest with yeah. you. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll put it this way. The Call to Thorn stuff isn't that great, the way it's executed, but I think it's interesting that they... They, uh, I kind of miss that. I wish the Halloween franchise had more of a through line like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a hard franchise to have a through line. That's why it it's probably never been a franchise. But. That's why they have to keep uh, bringing in new continuities of Jamie Lee and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, 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 did, I did enjoy the controversial Halloween kills, I will say that. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan, but whatever. I also didn't understand why anybody... It, to me, it was just one of those movies where people seemed like they were either too defensive of it or hated it too much. Right, right. Uh, it struck me as the kind of movie that it was like, you watch it and you're like, oh, okay, and then you, you move on with your life. But you know how I am, Trev. It was Trev. weird that that became such a, a, like a flashpoint for everyone. <laughs> yeah. You know how I am, Trev. If, if it's part nine, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going a little more, I'm giving it a little more leeway. I'm not going to be overly critical. Now, I don't think we talked about it because what you said, like, there's all these contraptions in this house. The judge actually has something so he doesn't have to, like, you know, go up and down the stairs. He actually has this, like, chair that he sits mm-hmm. on and, like, a platform goes in between the levels. It's, like, I guess, like, a crude uh, elevator, but it's really just a platform with a chair on it with these giant straps that lower him into different rooms of the house. I thought that was actually pretty ingenious. Oh, and I, just, I had forgotten about this, but actually, go. We just got our answer about his face. That's that moment where Chevy Chase looks at that article on the on the wall there, and it says that the judge was uh, hurt oh, in like a, a foundry blast. That's so. right. I forget about that. Yeah, because I, I I had noticed that when I watched it, and I was like I was like trying to read it, but then I was like into the scene too. I think we've talked about this in other movies we've done of this era, but there's another thing where like I said like at any moment in this film. You can just entertain yourself by looking in the background. This is a production yeah. design, like, dream kind of film. And that's the thing is, we, you know, comedies nowadays are so cheap. And just think about how bizarre this movie is, but the fact that they gave it enough of a budget for, the, for this house to look this incredible and have this much random shit always happening in the background. Like, uh, that's, I don't, obviously a movie like this would not be made on this scale today. Everything would be... Yeah so much more downplayed and, and uh, smaller looking. Yeah. Which I guess we should say that's a big reason why this film, I mean, this film didn't generate any money at the box office, but it, it probably, even if it would have done a little bit better, uh, it, I think it was a pretty much an uphill battle to profitability be, since they spent about $40 million on this. Yeah. Pretty but, crazy to think there was a time where studios were just giving Dan Aykroyd $40 million. Well, I mean, uh, you know, you got to think about the uh, the the time when he was pitching this. We're we're talking, yeah. Uh, you know, only five or six years uh, after Ghostbusters. I mean, I think people were willing to listen. You know, but after Ghostbusters two, which was not that big of a success, so. Mm-mm. Which I got to say, Ghostbusters two was a movie I just always written off. Um, like I saw it, I was like, oh, you know, and not as good as the first, whatever. But like. I rewatched it like a month or two ago and I was like, this is actually interesting because usually with sequels, they go bigger and better and just, it becomes more empty and hollow and uh, just special effects. Ghostbusters 2 is weirdly a relationship movie. It's weird. Yeah, that's, 
Ghostbusters 2 is another movie that I think people are overly critical of. I yeah. think it's obviously not Ghostbusters, but it's not no. as bad as people make it out to be. It's just it's a it's a lesser sequel yeah. that happens, you know. But it's 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 completely watchable. Also, too, and I mean, I've been guilty of this over the years too, Trev, of various movies, but um, especially when the first entry of something is just so great, you're like, what? You know, don't fuck it up with sequels that aren't worthy or whatever. But at the same time, you kind of have to get over that and just try to take a, judge the movie as best you can. Like, do I like this movie as its own movie? Like, just just saying, oh, it's not as good as the original to me is kind of like a, a hollow, you know, criticism. Yeah, because you can just accept that immediately. Right? Okay, yeah. It's not the original. So, as you just said, like, what is it if it's not that? This is a very this is what, this uh, John Candy here is very very funny. Yeah. We, we we should say that uh, John Candy uh, as as the the woman uh, they've set it up where uh, they're gonna force Chevy Chase to marry her and he's like literally in shackles and chains now. Chevy Chase is. And th- this this was kind of like one of my favorite kind of what I was talking about of Chevy Chase with the kind of he the way he kind of like you know is naive and kind of whip pans the dialogue and stuff and kind of plays along and you know because he has no choice i mean he realizes at this point if he doesn't play along they'll kill him he's seen the piles of bones uh hidden in the walls and everything so this is actually very reminiscent of were you a big tales from the crypt guy goat i was and i wasn't just from the fact that uh when it pretty much had the majority of its run we had just moved and uh my neighborhood like literally did not have cable laid yet and it was before satellite so Eventually, my buddies got cable, so I would like it was like the thing to do when we did sleepovers. Uh, we yeah, we pretty much like if it was on HBO, like we would always watch Tales from the Crypt. But it wasn't like something where like I had access where like I've seen the majority of episodes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll come back to the point I was going to make. I just want to point out this is another great to me more part that this is one of the parts that I've always remembered and stuck with me is the uh, talking about her comedic performance where she's playing cards with uh, Bobo and Little Devil mm-hmm. and she's kind of talking to them the way they talk. I love when she's like doing that. Well, no, yeah. that's because Bobo does this, you know, like that. <laughs> so she's very funny in that. Um, but no, there's actually there's an episode of Tales from the Crypt with uh, I believe it's Ed Bigley Jr. and Tim Curry. Mm-hmm. Ed Bigley Jr. is a traveling salesman who ends up. It's the same kind of idea where he ends up going to this house where the entire family, every member of the family, is played by Tim Curry. And he eventually gets like, trapped there, and they're forcing him to marry like the daughter, which is a, a Tim Curry playing a woman. So that's that's what this actually kind of reminded me of. Yeah, I think I've actually seen that episode. Now that I think about it, but uh, we yeah, just, we we can't not talk about this. But oh, we got to talk about it. this. Was kind of like the thing that got me and all my friends, you know, because I was like probably uh, in in uh, junior high at this point when this film came out. This is this was like the thing that made this the the hip and cool movie for the eighth and ninth graders at the time, the appearance of digital underground. Cause like Dan, Aykroyd, usually, usually when you say Trevor, when you see like musical acts and films, it's usually a couple years after their heyday. Like mm-hmm. Aykroyd got these guys like literally in their heyday, like digital underground was really big for a year or two. And he got them right in the smack middle. Like other than the original Humpty dance song, this was pretty much their biggest song. I was, saying, was this, is this post or pre Humpty dance? It's post. So the okay. album with Humpty Dance, my bu- my buddy had the cassette, which ironically the cassette of their their first major uh, record, Sex Packets. If you bit, get the cassette, you get like three extra songs. It's weird, but so yeah. So that album was ninety, and then they did this. You know, this song came out when the film did for ninety one. There's a there's a great tie in video, which I don't think it's on the disc. I looked it up on YouTube, uh, which is really really bizarre and politically incorrect now, but. Yeah, so like Digital Underground, 
And this is where, because we talked about the dual roles, right, Trev? Like, Ackroyd plays two roles, Candy plays two roles. Just by the nature of having Digital Underground in, uh, there's a guy playing two roles here. So, Shock G, the rapper, and Humpty uh, Hump are the same person. So, like, for these shots, like, if you notice, you never see Shock G's face full on while you see Humpty Hump and vice versa. Because they were like, you know, switching costumes, and his brother would uh, play the other character. While well, he was Humpty was him. definitely his best character, right? Yeah. That's the one I always remember, and uh, yeah. I love the no- the nose and everything. Yeah, he's great. Um, this is also the film debut of Tupac Shakur. It is Tupac. Uh, Digital Underground was a very interesting group. Like they were like an actual group group, and uh, they would have members like rotate in and out on a, literally a, a album by album basis, almost tour by tour basis, and. Yeah, they just lightning in a bottle. This is when uh, Tupac has actually a verse where he, he raps on this song. But uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is uh, you know, at the time we didn't really know who Tupac is. But when he made that movie Juice a year after this, we're like, oh, the guy from Juice was also in Nothing But Trouble. Yeah, and it's a good song. It's a song I've always remembered, too. Yeah. What do you think of this whole, like, because uh, this to me strikes me as like a very 80s, or early 90s thing. The fact of just even bringing in a popular artist and yeah grinding the movie to a halt to have like a musical number like what do you do you do you miss that do you feel like it's yeah. out of place this film no like, I yeah think i it, miss it big time it definitely adds like a weird character to the film right? yeah and I, I think too like Ackroyd talked about it on his interview in the desk and also the historian guy talked about it i think it takes a lot of people by surprise because you know they think the judge is just going to be one note you know because he thinks mm-hmm. chevy chase is a banker even though chevy chase is and that's why he goes so hard on them but like a lot of people think he's just the judge is just purely evil and he just wants to murder everybody. But it's actually not the truth. He finds out that this group, Digital Underground, you know, they get pulled over, or whatever, brought to the court. You know, they say they're musicians, so he says, "Okay, you know, prove prove that you're a musician." I mean, not that, like that would really matter, but to him, it does. So you know, he likes their music. He actually participates. He gets in on his piano in it, and he has such a good time that he lets them go. And I, I think that actually. Like, that's something, like you said, like, oh, a movie now wouldn't grind to a halt to do something like that. But I think including that musical number, I mean, obviously, you know, in this movie, it's because it's Dan Aykroyd and the guy loves music. But um, I think that actually just that moment and that performance gives more depth to the judge that he lets yeah, them go. It humanizes know? him, right? especially he even joins in, right? He pulls yeah. out his, like, uh, his organ and starts, well, that sounds bad, he pulls out his organ. But yeah. uh, he starts playing his piano, which is bad, and enjoys the... it. The group is all into it, too. Yeah, the hot background dancer girls, they're all dancing with him and stuff. And he he, he kind of, you know, as hobbled as he is when he's playing the music, he kind of gets more spry. And I like, like, I don't know if it's sped up or weird, but that weird, like, back move that Ackroyd does, <laughs> like, when he's playing the organ, he's getting all excited. Like, I really love that part. It feels like one of those scenes that I wonder, was there a music video version of this that would have played on MTV? It yes. feels like it's designed for that. There was, okay. So it, that's what I was going to say, just real quick. It's a, it's a very bizarre music video where it's basically, a mini drive-in where like the group pulls in in multiple vehicles and the the movie's playing on the drive-in screen and uh you know they cut it it's one of those ones too try where they cut in clips from the movie into the video mm-hmm. and pretty much digital underground like they take turns like doing the different verses because there's like a verse you don't see in the movie and like pretty much they're a different ethnic group every time so like when Humpty Hump does his verse, they're dressed up as like basically like Chinese farmers with, you know, the hats on and everything. When another guy does their verse, like they're all dressed for some reason as Hasidic Jews. And then there's another part um, where uh, Humpty Hump again uh, raps and um, 
and he's uh he's or maybe it's Chuck G, maybe it's his part, but they they're dressed like Native Americans. And it's very weird and there's like a part where they scroll by NWA. It's just they're just there sitting on a car top. It's actually Dr. Dre and Easy E. And then Dan Aykroyd is there dressed in the same manner that NWA is. So I guess <laughs> I guess Dan Aykroyd was a unofficial member of NWA for a day. <laughs> oh. Interesting. Yeah, the, the the way actually Digital Underground uh, got into the film was uh, Dan Aykroyd went to one to one of their concerts in L.A. and uh, he went in the back to talk to them that he was doing this movie and he wanted to include a group and he smoked a joint with them and he just talked them into coming to one of the movie. I wonder why the uh, Dan Aykroyd's brief involvement with NWA wasn't covered in Straight Outta Compton. I mean, that movie was long enough, right? Like, that movie was long enough. They they should have got to that, I think. Or at the very least, he could have played the old Jerry guy or whatever. <laughs> where does it? Where does a? Well, I guess it's not called NWA. It's called Straight Outta Compton. Where does that rank to you on the on your list of biopics or musical biopics? I should say. I wasn't super into it, honestly. Yeah. You know, I have a hard time with biopics in general. There's a few I like, but I think that was one where I thought the fact that it was made by them, yeah, um, allowed them to tell their version of the story, and I feel like a lot of really interesting, compelling parts of their history that are a little less flattering were left out, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I get why people responded to it. Really good performances. You know, it's it's decent enough at giving, like, a, a Wikipedia recap of their career, I suppose. Yeah. But I, I wasn't super into it as a, as a movie. But I, it, that's pretty tough. There's not too many of those music biopics I like. I like Walk right. the Line. Um, but in general, I tend to – I would always almost – Nine times out of ten, I'd rather just watch a documentary about the band. Right, I, I think it's fun, like with the NWA film, Straight Out Come. I think it's fun to kind of see the time period recreated in a way. Yeah, but uh, if I had to pick one or the other, I'd, I'd rather watch CB4. Oh, for sure, CB4 is great. Or Fear of a Black Hat. Oh, dude, Fear of a Black Hat. Like I said, like you know, the, a lot of these boutique labels have been coming through my Blu-ray ha- uh, Holy Grails. I've been getting them a lot lately. Fear of the Black Hat is one of the ones, like, I, I remember I saw that in an art house theater. I bought the soundtrack CD. Like, I just love that movie. Rusty Cundeef, man. Like, man. Yeah. He was on fire for a couple years there. So Chevy Chase gets thrown to the, the bone stripper now because he uh, he was supposed to marry John Candy, female John Candy. Um, Eldona. Eldona, yeah, that's right. I kept want to say Caldona. But yeah, Eldona. And, uh, yeah, he, he was like, he finally got out of line enough where the judge was like, fuck it, I'm going to feed you to the bone stripper. And, and, uh, I thought it was funny, Chevy Chase, he gets spared because the bone stripper breaks down, but he's, for some reason, like it stops spinning the pistons, but he somehow still gets shot out the tube at the end. I thought that was weird. (laughs) Yeah. Different contraptions, I guess. Different motors. Yeah. I do like the pile of bones and everything here though. It's very horrific. Like... I guess in a weird way too, like this were like maybe if you're going to do like a double bill at a drive-in or a, a repertory theater, I think maybe in a weird way uh, this would kind of play well with the Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I can totally see that. And like even the even like you know beyond like the boneyard and all that kind of shit. Um, just when Chevy Chase is running, running through the junkyard, to me that's kind of like the scariest part. So my my only criticism of this film, Trev, is you you had the uh, the uh, I guess they're supposed to be Argentinian. They had Argentinian uh, passports, but the Argentinian brother and sister they offered 
Yeah, because yeah, he calls them Brazilianaires. Right? Yeah. He, they offer to pay for John Candy escape and like they, the the they don't he, you don't really see him agree but it kind of like leaves you hanging as to what he did with them mm-hmm. so like this whole time you really don't know if there's two characters Taylor Negron and the other lady like you really don't know if they're alive or dead yeah I mean there's hints right because yeah. obviously someone let Terry Chase and Demi Moore out of that room so you right. sense okay so John Candy is trying to at least give them a fighting shot now because they said also let her friends out. But yeah. I do think it leaves – well, when we get to it near the end, maybe I'll remember to point out how I feel like it kind of um, – you know, uh, there's a there's a potential plot there that they could have picked up on that they, they kind of just abandoned. But yeah, uh, yeah, whatever. Where are you at on uh, – I was just curious because I was just thinking about I was just, I was actually just thinking about how um, how good I actually think John Candy is and like the kind of slightly more serious cop role in this mm-hmm. and thinking how – I was just thinking like, oh, I would have – too bad there was never a franchise where John Candy had a character like that, like a uh, like a noir kind of detective with like slight comedic elements to it because I think he could have like pulled it off really well. Yeah. And then what popped in my head, and I want to ask Goat in terms of John Candy, where are you at on Who's Harry Crumb? That's another movie I watched all the time as a kid. Yeah, that that was one I, I didn't really see it, I don't think, right when it came out because I remember watching it on TV a couple of times. Like, I liked it. And of course, there's mm-hmm. always the great thing where the, 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 the fake beard lands on the ladies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, uh, I liked it, but yeah, it's it's not top tier to me. Like uh, when it comes to John Candy, I'm more of a, um, I'm you know what I think actually my favorite John Candy shit at, as a kid was either, I think it was actually probably Great Outdoors. Oh great, that's why I was. That's mine. That's my number one John Candy. Yep. And I enjoyed I, I enjoyed Summer Rental. Who's yeah. Harry Crumb? Obviously, it's great. Uh, in terms of watching John Candy because he's the lead role and he plays all these weird dress-up things. But even as a kid, it kind of like was like a little too silly for me. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, uh, was it Delirious where he's the soap opera writer? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Delirious I picked up about 10 years ago at a Big Lots for a $3 DVD and I just watched it for the first time and I'm just kind of like... Oh no, I'm I'm sorry. It's not Delirious. I'm thinking of going to Berserk. Yeah, you know what? You know what? I actually ha- I haven't ever seen Delirious now that I think about it. Oh, it's a good it's a good concept. He's like a soap opera writer who gets like hit on the head and wakes up inside the soap opera he writes. Right, right. Yeah, I remember that. I remember the previews for that, but I, I don't think I've ever seen it like at all. People love soap opera comedy back then. You had Soap Dish, Delirious. You know what's weird though is like it didn't. I mean, I could be a thousand percent wrong, Trev. I could look up box office mojo and prove me wrong. But I feel like the only films of John Candy's that were really like big hits i mean like the ones he starred in like was really like uncle buck and maybe summer rental yeah uncle buck is definitely his biggest hit and really kind of the only like pop culture phenomenon movie he had yeah yeah too bad that he was then supplanted in most people's head as uncle buck by kevin meany who of course played the part in the uncle buck tv show and i don't don't get me wrong i like kevin meany but um who doesn't i mean that's not right you know i still hear people quote that all the time yeah, I, th- I think Uncle Buck is a it's a it's a one and done. I mean, because you had the team up of the the budding Macaulay Culkin, and I I didn't because I actually watched the Uncle Buck TV show too. I just it never to me it never caught the the. Quite. You know, there was two Uncle Buck TV shows. There's the Kevin Meany one, and then there's like a more recent one with Mike Epps as Uncle Buck. Oh, I think you're right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know you're right, but I totally forgot about. it. I just remember the Kevin Meany one. That's this is pretty weird. cool. I like this whole like uh, watermelon like carb like uh, this, yeah. this contraption that's gonna slice to me more into pieces. This is where we actually you know getting like some legit kind of action beats here, which is again fun to have in a what would also what would ultimately be probably more simple comedy nowadays. You can see Chevy Chase action hero too much. 
I just wonder how much of like a really straight because by the way i i love the movie as it is i love the way it plays you know it kind of has this weird thing where it has like four or five different endings at the end (laughs) like you think it's wrapping up and then it just keeps going but other than that like i i don't i don't i it's hard to say because when i saw this movie as a kid and i loved it because how weird it was um i mean i say a kid but i was probably like 13 or 14 when i saw it but you know what i mean but i was just like i i always thought this was like the funnest movie and it's like yeah it had the backdrop but to me this was more in the vein of something like Gremlins than it than it was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like yeah, there's a threat there, but the mm-hmm. comedy and the kind of fun adventure spirit of it overrides more than you know. Well, that's what I mean. That's where you wonder, like, because I know the story. You, like you said, the stories they went and saw Hellraiser, and whatever audience they were seeing with was laughing a lot. It's yeah, kind of surprised me. I was like, what audience was laughing at Hellraiser? Yeah, that's but, that's bizarre because I yeah. to me Hellraiser was the the pitchest black that horror yeah. could get when I was ten um, years old when I saw it. But they had that idea of like, let's try to make like a like a horror like that that like allows you to laugh at it. Yeah. And I do think if there's like a failing to this film, it's that as a horror comedy, the horror is not necessarily developed enough. You know, I, I would like to see a slightly better balance there. And I think this, that would probably raise yeah. this a little bit for me. If there was like a, you know, if this had a night, you know, that's probably why they went to Landis. Cause he probably would have, obviously he could find that balance a little um, more cleverly. I, I don't think Aykroyd is ultimately that interested in ever kind of actually disturbing you or making you scared. He just want to get, he just wants to get to the laughs. But Trev, do you think too, like as much as they're like, Oh, this isn't really a true horror movie it's like yeah the adults wouldn't be scared of this but like adults adults like loved ghostbusters but they weren't really scared of it either whereas like i th- i think like a 9 year old 8 year old 7 year old kid would be scared of ghostbusters and i think the same age child would probably be scared of this too i mean maybe and i think there's just something we said too for this era where um there is like kind of tendency to have these comedies that are dealing with like horror tropes but are mm-hmm. just kind of more comedic you know the other now, I'm, these two movies aren't very comparable to me because the other one I'm about to say is one of my all-time favorite movies. But this is kind of like The Burbs, right? Where yeah. The Burbs is a very much a, a horror setting, but never really scary. Uh, it has some very, very dark ideas, but it's just a total goofy comedy about what's happening in this in this uh, you know cul-de-sac. And this in that same vein of saying this is basically taking what this this uh, this could have been a horror movie and saying okay, but let's just turn it into a pure comedy. You're right. You can easily rewrite this. You could remove the jokes and have this be, as we were just saying, this could be like a Rob Zombie horror film, no problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, literally just pick the script up and hand it to Rob Zombie and it's going to be completely different, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, 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 you know, like, you know, obviously whenever we talk about movies being kind of influenced by studio hands or whatever, Trev, it's usually a a crippling and devastating effect. I mean, I, I, I don't think it really hurt this film. You know what I mean? Like, the... The, even like the PG thirteen directive again, we'll never be able to see or know what got cut out, you know. But um, yeah, it's just like I don't know, like like I think what killed this film and its prospects was just how fucking weird it is, you know what yeah. I mean? Like like you. Well, that's the thing is like you can't be too mad at Warner Brothers for this one because they made this movie. The yeah. fact that they allowed this movie to be made and gave Dan Aykroyd this much leeway, and honestly, you know, we so you and I talk about like what studios uh, we like a lot, and I, I will say in general, even today. I still find Warner Brothers to be one of the better studios in yeah. terms of they still today seem like they respect filmmakers a little bit more than other studios. You look at something like Denis Villeneuve, right? And he did Blade Runner 2049 for them, which was a gigantic bomb, right? Yeah. And their response was, okay, but we still like the movie enough that we'll we'll give you the money to go off and do Dune. Like another yeah. studio wouldn't do that. I think they're like a little bit more willing to um, allow for failures if they feel like there's an actual artistic vision there. And, uh, and that kind of goes back to this. Like they... 
they made this weird, bizarre film that is just is so memorable because of how crazy it is. Exactly. And, like, you know, like, Aykroyd talked about, like, you know, they trimmed a little to just get the the editor and stuff to get the film pace-wise. You know, there's, like, he was talking about there was some, like, mostly some bits at the end here. Like, the ending went on a little bit longer or whatever. But, I mean, like, like they didn't, as far as, I mean, unless there is weirdness that was cut that we don't know about. I mean, this film has weirdness intact. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, like, I just don't think you're ever going to, like, I will say where Warner Brothers dropped the ball was the re- release date was horrible. I think we should mention mm-hmm. that. So, it came out, like, a week or so after um, Silence of the Lambs and um, uh, Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts. And then, this, I believe the same week of this came out. King Ralph came out with the John Goodman, which was a pretty heavily marketed uh, comedy. And I, you know, I don't know what the marketing budget was for for this, if they spent a lot or just kind of dumped it out there, but it's like, it was just a little too much competition and too weird of a movie to whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Look how cute Demi Moore looks in that hat, by the way, the FBI hat. I know. Like, like, like I, like this is just like a weird thing, Trev, you know? But you know how dirty and scummy her and Chevy got, you know, running around and everything? That scene where they go to the cops and it shows them they're changed in, like, sweatsuits and stuff and they're cleaned up. Like, it's almost like a relief when I get to that scene. Like, oh, they're clean again. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, these are movie stars. They should be clean. They shouldn't be, you know, filled with dirt. Now, I do like this twist. This is another thing I always liked as a kid. Like, this this ultimate reveal here is nice. Because, like, one of my favorite things in horror, whether it's horror or comedy, is that idea of suddenly just being confronted where everyone is out to get you yeah i just think that's that's just one of my favorite horror tropes and i, I think it's played well here i also just love this moment where he plays so innocent to open yeah. the door something's just like this kind old man yeah the judge pretends like he doesn't know who they are and you think oh it's because all the cops are there and you know what i mean like oh he's trying to weasel out of everything he did but no obviously the twist here is, is all the cops know the judge everybody like like literally there's like a hundred cops national guardsmen there like they're yeah. all in on it well, that's good, too, because this actually – I love how we're talking about this as if it's, like, a real movie, right? But yeah, right. This, this twist justifies that moment because you do have a moment where you're like, why would this many yeah. cops come? Like, why would the cops in the National Guard come? I know they told a crazy story, but ultimately they say we're going to this house to apprehend, what, four people? Yeah. And they're like, oh, you don't need this much of a force. But then when you find out that this is all, like, a swerve, then it's like, oh, okay, well, that's why they all came. They were coming to visit their buddy. Yeah, the judge because, you know, they're all – they're all connected to Pennsylvania. And then, again, like, you know, I like, Trev, I just miss when movies were allowed to be as theatrical and over-the-top as they wanted to be or whatever. And, like, again, like, all of a sudden the, the underground coal fire is exploding, the ground is opening up, you know, Demi Moore almost falls down into it. And, I, you know, it's it's completely, like... Like if this, I mean, not that this film went over well when it came out, but especially if you try to do this now in a movie, people will be bitching online so much at how unbelievable it is. And I like it back then when movies were allowed to be unbelievable, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although this the last part also with the twist, it does reveal that this movie was ahead of its time in terms of uh, ACAB. You know, all, all cops are bastards. So exactly. That's, uh, maybe, that's, we, maybe we need the remake today and have it be like a more political driven version of Nothing But Trouble. Jordan Peele's Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny too? How everybody's like, "Oh, uh, uh, um, Get Out is a is you know a, a riff on uh, the Stepford Wives or whatever." And what if Jordan Peele was like, "No, no, 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 nothing but trouble." That was the main. <laughs> you could easily see how you could change nothing but trouble into like kind of a race based, you know, yeah. like social horror for sure. Yeah, but that's the thing in this movie. Uh, we, as you said, we learned that. Uh, the judge is not racist at all. His favorite people in this movie are digital underground. Yeah, digital. He loves digital underground. Which I gotta say too, it's like 
what do you think about that, Trev, now that, you know, we've, you know, get out has happened and all that kind of thing? Like, can you really play that paranoia in a film, in a race-based film? Because it's like part of the, part of what makes a great paranoia film is that you're not sure if they really are out to get you or not. Whereas I feel like now, kind of with the race-based paranoia, paranoia with kind of the moment we're in in history, it's like, no, you'll, you'll just automatically know that they are out to get them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's a little tougher to uh, have that be the surprise. Yeah. So here we get that that quick like the wrap up where we discover that John Candy has gone off with the, uh, the Brazilian heirs and he's now their head of security and he's dating the sister. What do you what do you think of that as a, like a wrap up for that story? I loved it because I was a little bothered watching this trip because I'm like, what happened to them? I, like I thought maybe like oh maybe their deaths got cut out of the film and that was what originally happened. I'm like, oh no, it just they just had a happy ending. We just went half the movie without seeing what happened to them. So, so this is my only thing, right? Like, and I, I know I'm being silly because it's a, it's a silly movie. But yeah. you do watch it and you think, well, they they asked John Candy to help get their friends out, you know. And now right. we, they're they're obviously still rich. They've gone back to Argentina. They are living with John Candy. It seems like they could definitely get involved and still help Chevy Chase and Demi Moore at this point, you know. So the fact that it seems like they've now just abandoned their friends, right? Uh, and like left them to whatever fate happened in that scene, we we just kind of went past, you know. Um, but maybe that's maybe that was a sequel bait. Maybe here at the end. Chevy Chase and Demi Moore were going to try to escape to uh, Brazil with them and the judge in pursuit. Yeah, because, I mean, for a movie, like, I could never imagine this being, like, I could imagine this movie under the right circumstances being a modest little hit. But mm-hmm. they almost, like, set you up for some weird sequel bait, don't they, Trev? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I mean, I think it's just a funny ending. I don't, I'm not the biggest fan of the Looney Tunes uh yeah. man-shaped hole-in-the-wall gag at the end. I don't think you need that. I think it would have worked just as well if you just had Chevy Chase fall off the couch. I think that's probably the better place to end it. Right. But but I do like this ending. I, I like the you know the notion of... And again, like it's not the dumbest screenplay in the world. It brings back the fact that he did go through with the wedding, so he is married to her. Yeah. He says, you know, legally. we're going to my son-in-law's place. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, legally, he's, he's discovers that he's kind of maybe trapped in that. So. I had to look up the cast listing because I couldn't tell because, you know, he's watching this TV news report and they actually show it like through the TV and so it's not the best quality. I couldn't tell if the reporter was uh, uh, Courtney Cox or not. Turns out, it I, I had that same thought. Yeah, yeah, she definitely looks like Courtney Cox. Oh, there's the return of the penis nose. Yeah, yeah. When they, when they show the judge on the on the news report, you know, he has the penis nose again and he holds up Chevy Chase's. I think that was the best horror moment, right? When they go in the attic and they see the millions of, of driver's license up there of all the people mm-hmm. the judge has killed. I think that was the uh, the scariest part to me. And then we have, like, the... Uh, the uh, So so who, who ripped off who? I, I know technically Coming to America came out first, but who ripped off playing a billion characters under heavy makeup? <laughs> uh, Dan Aykroyd or Eddie Murphy? Um, I feel like today we like we see it as more we understand it's more of like an Eddie Murphy thing. Yeah. But but again, I think that's just coming off of SNL. I think people are like willing to do that. I think we need I think we need more of that. I, I, I like that idea of a single person playing multiple characters in a film. Exactly. You, you kind of wish like this isn't really it's not really Chevy Chase's thing, but it seems like because Dan Aykroyd and John Candy doing this, you almost kind of wish Chevy Chase had like one more character just to complete the, the little right. trifecta there. Right. Yeah, and uh, we we kind of alluded to it, but yeah, John Candy didn't want to play the female uh, character, and uh, apparently a nice gag was uh, when he would walk around dressed as the female character in the crew just to be funny, would catcall him and stuff, mm-hmm. and he would say, geez, it's, it's kind of funny what I'm willing to do for a million dollars, so... <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, like I mean, I know I know, you know, th- this this show is about, you know, kind of older films whether they were successful or not, you know, lost gems or whatever. And I got to say uh this movie being a box By the way, Trev, I had no idea this was a box office bomb at the time cuz like you know, everybody in my age group was excited to see it, and uh, you know, everybody who didn't see it theatrically it's, saw it. I think it's video. really tough for our generation to understand which movies were bombs as you get older, yeah. because of that fact that these movies we grew up with, like this or like Big Trouble in China, um, the thing that kind of like were immediately resurrected on cable. I, I think we just oh, I assume like well, those are successful movies, right? And you go back yeah. and find what's even more surprising is seeing how some of them were like unsuccessful at the box office, and critics hated them. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, what? You know, yeah. so that's yeah. I can never kind of gauge like what were successes and what weren't. Yeah, and like I just you know I just wish this would have been a hit, um, just in terms of like even though he kind of was you know back end whatever force into directing it, I would have liked to seen more Dan Aykroyd creations. Um, yeah, if nothing else, this makes you clearly this definitely makes you want more unfiltered Dan Aykroyd movies because yeah. I think he's somebody who because his ideas are so extreme, a lot of stuff he ended up working on was him kind of having to respond more to studio notes and, and downplaying. It's so obviously even Ghostbusters is like a compromised version of his, of his vision. And as I said, I'm, on that one, I'm glad. Yeah. I look at this way and I go, I wish this had, I wish this had set off like maybe three or four more, like just weird, weird beard, complete Dan Aykroyd, uh, you know, uh, unfiltered Dan Aykroyd on screen. And I got to say too, it's like the production value is insane in this film. Uh, the, the one thing that were like, that made this movie just as memorable as like all the weird characters or whatever was, um, you know, uh, just the star power that's in it. I mean, it's like, to to me more, it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you expect Chevy and Aykroyd and John Candy, but like the fact that they got who, I mean, unless uh, I would say she was probably right up there, if not tied with at the time is with, um, Julia Roberts as being the kind of the biggest female movie star Mm -hmm. at the time, you know? So it just it's just a nice little oddity, which is weird to say a nice little oddity for a forty million dollar movie, but like yeah. I guess we should say too the like the last little bit of trivia I had and I saw it in the credits was uh I don't know if you know this Trev, but a lot of the makeup was done by David Miller, who created Freddy Krueger in the original mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street. So no. Also in the credits was a uh, special thanks to John Hughes. Yep. Who I know was like one of the directors who was, uh, I think he was actually, wasn't he like actually maybe a little interested in doing it? Yeah, I I want to say, I'm blanking. I, I can't remember what, there was some project he was in the middle of and he couldn't do it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I can't but remember. I think he gave he gave Ackroyd some notes on a script, I believe. And I remember there was a, some talk too of, of uh, somebody, I can't remember if they talked to the Palma or so, but there was like somebody that they were, or maybe an actor or somebody they were trying to get that was involved with Bonfire of the Vanities. And like Bonfire of the Vanities, I finally watched about two or three years ago on cable. Again, for like not not the worst movie in the world. It's it's a over the top farce. It's like if you know what the well, movie I, is, like, you know. I can't remember if I heard it on this disc in the bonus feasters or if it was somewhere else where they said that maybe one of the reasons the studio was like kind of not paying that much attention to this was because at the time they were more concerned with Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, maybe that's and what that it was. was like, yeah. That was like blowing up in their face. And then so they're yeah. They were sending all their like damage control people to that set, and and Dan Aykroyd just had kind of free reign to do whatever he wanted over here. Yeah, and and uh, you know Chevy Chase on the interview, he talks about how Dan Aykroyd was a unorthodox director. I mean, he kept like you know like like if he wanted to talk to you about the scene, he would just would be like, hey, let's jump in the car, ride down the road, let's talk about this scene, you know. 
Um, is definitely, by all accounts, a very enjoyable shooting experience, you know. So, so what do you think? You want a Nothing But Troll remake, or you want a legacy sequel where we bring back Jerry Gates, <sighs> reveal that he's the same character, older, thinks he's gotten away, but doesn't find finds out the judge is actually still alive. Judge is like a hundred and you know what? What is it? One hundred and thirty now? Or yeah, no, not even close, dude. Legacy sequel, a remake yeah. would almost be borderline blasphemy. Um, again, the 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 one exception I will. I will gladly watch Rob Zombie's Nothing But Trouble, <laughs> but, but yeah, like I would, dude. I would, I would love a legacy legacy sequel. I would, actually, I would actually really love to see uh, Demi back as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like I keep up with her on social media and stuff, but like I really, I mean, I know she does act a lot of smaller movies, or whatever. Still, but like I would love to see her in like kind of. She a just movie. a couple years ago did a, a horror comedy called. Uh, I think it was like Corporate Animals. Did you see that? Because no. I've heard like decent stuff about it. I never got around to watching it. it I've, was heard, about, I've heard. Yeah, it's about like a court, like a you know, like, um, business people on like one of those like corporate retreats, and then they start getting killed off one by one. It's like a oh, kind okay. of a slasher film. Yeah. Yeah, I heard of it, and um, and I was surprised to see her in the cast list, but I had no idea really even what type of film it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, actually, I'll give I'll give that a shot. Yeah, I miss her. Um, yeah. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Again, I like. It was obviously good for her career at the time, but like, I almost think like, I don't know, like, 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 it was. She was one of those people who her, her career actually it seemed like got damaged the more famous she got because it felt like the pressure was there for her to, to keep doing bigger. So she was doing these giant films like G.I. Jane and Striptease and stuff that were like all about her being the the giant star of the film more than like you know there were star vehicles i guess that's what you would call them because we don't really have that type of film anymore but star vehicles whereas like i just thought she was just you know and maybe that was the best material she had offered to her at the time but like i don't know like i just think she was a lot more of a chameleon that people gave her credit for it's funny because i was just thinking about what you said earlier about how like hollywood kind of cast them off at a certain age yeah and I uh, referenced this earlier, and you know, this is—it shows how like we too often even I think buy into like what Hollywood trains us to accept and believe. Yeah. And the ultimate example of that is, you know, when I was younger, I remember uh, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle being kind of a comeback film for her, mm-hmm. and I definitely was guilty at the time of going to see that movie and being and so this is like a big comeback and being like, oh man, I can't believe look how she's uh, she looks incredible, she still looks great. Yeah. And then looking up and realizing she was 41 in that movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's I how know, old dude. I am now, you know. It's like, oh, I can't believe old Demi Moore is still hot. Well, of course she's hot at 41, you know. It's just like, but that thing is like at that point she'd been off the scene and that was like, Oh, yeah. the, the old seasoned hand. But, um, yeah, I mean that's, so that's just Hollywood sexism even filtering into my brain, unfortunately. You, you know, you know, it's, and this is a ridiculous term to use for both these people, but like, you know, it was maybe a movie that didn't quite stick the landing, but was interesting in concept and casting was the kind of, uh, and again, it's cause both of them were kind of, you know, their careers were a little washed at the time, but that movie, Mr. Brooks with, uh, oh, I love that movie. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, with Costner as the serial killer and and Demi as the cop trying to get him, and and like that was like that casting of those two people. Like, it's a cool movie, but I don't think it really would like that was a little bit of a magical thing of you had two kind of you know ninety stars at the beginning of the two thousands or whatever whenever that film came out, and like I think that movie what was really special about that movie was the casting. Uh, I, 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 I won't say the casting was as magical for uh, Dane Cook Dane in it, Cook, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was like definitely at that time where you felt like, oh, we got to get him to get the kids in to see. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, that is a movie that we will one day be covering on Failure Franchise, because I'm not sure if you're aware, that was meant to be the beginning of, there was a, there was a plan to Mr. Brooks' trilogy. No, I did not know that. Was that's, it... If, if you remember the way that film ends, it like sets up the next chapter. Yeah. Like ultimately, it's about to be this like story of you know his daughter and what's be, what's happening right. with her and becoming this kind of battle between him and his daughter. Um, but yeah, the there the screenwriters talked about how they had the next two planned, and Kevin Costner and Daniel Panabaker were both down to do it, but the movie did not did not take yeah. off. Yeah, I remember it even felt kind of like a B release when it came out. Like I mean, I yeah. saw it right when it came out. Oh, but uh, that was one of those ones that came out at that time where like Kevin Costner was like really like. People Iffy. just didn't care about him anymore, yeah. you know. And I remember, like, that was one of those defensive, like, no, he's still awesome. So you go see Mr. Brooks. Like, this, this is going to be the start of like a big comeback for him. He's willing to play like bigger like villains now. Because I always think yeah. of that. And then I'm not even. Sure, I don't think these are too close in time. But uh, I'm a huge defender and lover of Three Thousand Miles to Graceland. Oh, are you kidding? Which, which I also like. Think Kevin Costner is just fantastic in that. I, I like when Kevin Costner plays bad guys. I think he does it really well. Um, well, or even like a subtle bad guy, like something like yeah. um, not that he's the villain, but. One of my favorite Clint Eastwood movies, A Perfect World. I think. Oh, I love A Perfect World. I yeah. love it. I actually think that's because like, Eastwood directed that one, right? Yeah, yeah. That's like one of his unsung masterpieces. Yeah, I, th- I think that's actually you know, I, I mean, obviously, there's probably a few I haven't seen over the years, or probably earlier in his career, but I think that's the the best directed movie uh, Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood has directed. But um, but yeah, I always wondered if I could ever, ever rope anybody into doing a show of uh, Three Thousand Miles of Graceland. So I, I think I found oh, the person you, now. Yeah, you just found your guy. Let's 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 do that for sure. Coming twenty twenty two, people. Mark your calendars. <laughs> so so Trev, uh, this is uh, this episode is going out in a few weeks, uh, probably beginning in December. This is probably the the because I got some other episodes bang this might be your last uh appearance in the year of our lord 2021 was there any uh you know messages or just any you know thing you wanted to relate to uh our listeners uh no just if you if you made it through another year congrats it's not it's not easy anymore but uh but obviously uh, to the listeners thanks for sticking with this show go thanks for having me back quite frequently oh, well, thank you um definitely looking forward to more. We, we've already got some more stuff planned yeah um but obviously for me this you know uh in terms of if, if we're wrapping up here I'll, well I, you know if you have anything else to say sometimes you like to ask me other questions near the end yeah but, uh, yeah, I, yeah, we, yeah we, we don't have to wrap up wrap up this is a fairly I short mean, I will movie say like 2021 in terms of i'm glad that this year did feel like movies actually came back you know yeah, that was, that was yeah. nice to see i've been going back to the theater and it's just been nice to be forming an end of the year movie list already, you know, a tentative one. And it feels like a real list, not the bullshit fake one I had last year of all streaming releases and, and you know, yep. nothing else. So. Yeah, for for me, you know, earlier because like like where I live, like um, theaters were closed for quite a while. So in the last year, that whole HBO Max thing pretty much saved the year of quote unquote new movies for me. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. pretty much all of 2020, I had no choice but just to you know watch old stuff, and that was fun for a few months. I gotta admit, but you know it was nice to have new movies, you know, star mm-hmm. movies, whatever. Yeah. Um, my only real question for you is, uh, unless you did a letterbox that I missed, like where where you at on the 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 new version of Dune? Uh, oh, I, I did do a letterbox for it. That's actually my favorite movie of the year right now. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, I loved it, and it's and I'm very I'm very aware for me at least that I I'm coming to this as a huge Dune super fan. Yeah. I I love it's one of my favorite books of all time. I've read the, I've read Dune the book at least four times. Dang. And I've read the rest of the series at least. I mean I've read the rest of the series once, but I'm in, I'm actually in the middle of a reread of it now. Um, 
you know, in recent years, I've come around on the Lynch one to where now I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it's a very interesting failure. And so mm-hmm. I think it's still an important part of the filmography. And I, I, I do like revisiting it. I own and enjoy both the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries. So it's a movie I was already excited for. You know, I'm a Villeneuve fan in general. And I, I just thought it was fantastic. You know, and even I'm, I have small quibbles with it, only coming from my familiarity with the book. Um, but to me, it's interesting to talk to people who have watched it and have quite enjoyed it not knowing the book, because I do think it's a... Uh, to me, it feels like a movie that was very much designed for fans of the book because mm-hmm. he does not explain a lot of stuff that I wouldn't say it's not obviously obviously it's not necessary to know because it's attracting other audiences. But I was surprised at how many answers he does not give that I can watch and understand, and he just doesn't even bother getting into. Right. So um, it's you know even over the span of two movies, he still couldn't get into everything. But I still had fan. I mean, performances were fantastic, incredible sound design. Just a beautiful movie to look at. Yeah, I, I'm all in on it. I loved it. I'm very, very happy and excited that he's he got the green light for part two. Oh yeah, dude, that's everything. Because because you know, kind of my experience with it was I always had uh you know I only saw the David Lynch Dune two or three times over the years, and it wasn't mm-hmm. like a movie I loved as a kid, but I but it it was another one that I remembered a lot as as, as a kid just because I went in expecting Star Wars because this was a yeah. film that had toys and everything, and it was a very weird surreal experience, but I liked it a lot. Like we you know for years you know I always remembered the the sandworms and stuff, and uh, I hit you know I owned the film on HD DVD. I watched a couple times on that, and then like you know I just got the Arrow. Release. I like like I kind of knew I was setting myself up for whatever, but I was like, you know, the new Dune is here, and I got that that uh, that release like just a couple weeks before it came out. And I was like, I was like, fuck it, I'm I'm gonna watch the David Lynch one and then watch this one, and you know, if the if the new one suffers in comparison or vice versa, you know, that it will be what it is. You know, like both movies exist, can't can't get around it. So I watched the Lynch one. Um, Still, like I probably love it now more than ever. I just love how theatrical and weird it is. And and what I was surprised when I was watching the new one, like I really like the first hour. Like I was surprised how much the first hour of the Lynch version and the new version are very similar. Like they're mm-hmm. almost like they pick almost exactly the same scenes to adapt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they are the signature scenes. I think the Lynch one suffers from it's like it's got the right pacing for like the first hour. Yeah. And then suddenly he goes off the rails and cramming too much of the end. And I think that's why yeah. it was important for Villeneuve to give that its own movie instead. And, and, you know, I never read the book. So the whole criticism that the Lynch version was like a bad adaptation, so to speak. I was like, I don't care about that. I like I'm, I'm not comparative to the book because I never read the book. But, yeah, when I rewatched the Lynch version, I was like, damn, like the movie's just now getting good. And then they cram like the whole second half of the movie into like a 20 minute montage <laughs> in the Lynch version. And I was like, so so like to me, it's like the new one's kind of like a nice companion piece in terms of like once the the new version, once you got past that first hour and it kind of started deviating, and they were doing slightly different scenes or slightly different takes on scenes like I like I was kind of like mad on the first hour of the new one, and then like the the final you know ninety minutes, I was like really into it. I'm like, and then I thought like I I know some people complain like oh it doesn't have an ending. I thought the that uh, Villeneuve uh, put the the perfect moment to stop the film. Like I well, was that's like, the thing. So I, again, this is where it comes from. I always have to consider like, am I do I just feel this way because of my familiarity with the book? Yeah. And all I would say is to anyone who feels like that's a weird ending spot or like not the appropriate ending, just wait, because thematically the, the idea of ending on Paul's first, like, you know, 
the first time he kills someone yeah and like what that does to him as a person that's actually a pretty appropriate thematic ending for that film right because this is very much a, a, a story about what happens to paul as a person and and like the, the and this is why i really hope i i don't know i don't foresee this necessarily but i know villeneuve's plan is he would like to make the third film as well to adapt the second book mm-hmm. um dune messiah which kind of culminates the story of Paul. And I would love for them to get to do that. Just if nothing else, I don't want to get into too much of spoiler territory here, but yeah. I would love to watch a mainstream audience uh, grapple with what becomes <laughs> of our hero in, in the, in the future installments. I'm not sure how much of that, you know, go, but, no, uh, I, I, I don't. Yeah, so I won't say too much, but I, I hope he does get to do that. Even if, even if I don't necessarily think it will happen. But yeah, like, like, I mean, I was, I was all about it. You know, it, like the first kind of like hour of the new version, I was kind of like, like I missed the the color, like especially because everybody was like, "Oh, the new version is a visual masterpiece and all that." And like, I get why people are saying that, but I was like, I missed a lot of the color and like a lot of the weirdness. But that second half, I felt like, I don't know, it was probably just a me personally thing. Like at the second half of the the new one, I was like, it was really clicking to me. I was getting drawn in. I was like, oh man, like I can't, you know. And by the time I watched the movie, because I didn't watch the movie opening weekend, I watched it like this week, or whatever. Like I knew part two was coming. I was like so happy. But even if like for whatever reason part two wasn't coming, Trev, I would be happy. Like mm-hmm. it, it ended. I was like, oh, that's a perfect ending, or or at least a place to leave off for now. Like I thought. Yeah, it's weird because I've seen like even like um you know our buddy like uh, Jelly watched it and he was talking yeah. about how he had a disconnect from it because he felt like it wasn't a complete story. And I just yeah. I kind of felt like I had to disagree. I think like even. Yeah. You know, it's a cliffhanger, of course. It is the first installment, but I think there is a full story told in this movie about the collapse of a family, um, you know, like the the downfall of a great family and being accepted into a new society and what you have to do to do that. There's still there is a three act structure to this film, and it it works as its own piece, you know. And there's just there's just more to come. So yeah, I I love. Yeah, I I thought so too. Like like I I wish we could have got some more. um, Um. (laughs) <laughs> like 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 i was surprised how much i like momo in it uh not that i don't like jason momo that's that's but... I, would you say i think that was his best character yet right that yeah was like the best yeah I, I i think so like i wish brolin had more scenes but but i but i mean i know why he didn't you know what i mean um but yeah like i gotta say too like this is just a personal taste of mine it's like kyle mclaughlin was one of my favorite um actors in the 80s because i loved him in blue velvet and the hidden and dune was the first thing i ever saw him in so to me like i always loved him as paul atreides and then chalamet is kind of like my modern wonder boy like whereas like i shrug off uh, a lot of the the new young guys like tom holland they don't do much for me like chalamet is like right up my alley so like the only person that in my opinion modern day could have stepped into the atreides role as him and i just look forward to like seeing him do more you know mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you're a Chalamet guy. Um, just the other night, I don't know if you're. I don't know where you fall on Wes Anderson, but I just saw. I love French Wes Dispatch. Anderson. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I'm, I'm dying awesome. to see it. Yeah, and you're you're definitely gonna like Chalamet in that. Yeah, um, it, it's that's. I'll tell you what, man. That's already like, that's really up there for me in, in Wes Anderson. It's probably in my like top three of his. I I, I really really loved it. Yeah, it, it, it's it's hard for me to like do a Wes Anderson ranking because like some of his movies I've seen five times. And there's three that I've only seen once. Um, the, the I have a copy of it, but what is it, the Grand Budapest Hotel? Or no? Yeah, yeah. Grand Budapest. I love that in the theater, but I've only seen mm-hmm. it once. Isle of Dogs. I've only seen it once, but I mean, you know me. I love stop motion. And then I'm I'm blanking on the name. Oh, Darjeeling Limited. I only saw it once, and I was a little. That's the one I'm not super into. 
see, I was a little cool on it when I saw it theatrically, but I was the same way for some reason with Royal Tenenbaums. I was very cool on Royal Tenenbaums the first time I saw it, and then I like it just grew on me. My favorite Wes Anderson movie, just off the top of my head, is uh, Bottle Rocket. Believe it or not, yeah, but, that's I feel that I feel that too. Like I, I bring that up sometimes. People think I'm like doing that to be contrarian or like no, nah, it's, it's like, so no, good. No, that's just a really good, tight, simple movie. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting to see him starting to develop that style. Like in terms of the, you know, his big later, bigger budget, more fantastical, more quirky, whatever. Like, to I, I really like uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zazu, but uh, yeah, that's another one where I'm more cool on that than other people. I like it, but I, I think there there was like a little maybe some of the quirkiness of that one didn't really hit for me in the same way, particularly yeah. like the animated fish and everything. But um, but also like for me, and I'm sure that you feel this too, because you and I are like we always talk about how we're kind of close in age and. It's yeah. a lot of the same experiences, but Bottle Rocket is also this like nostalgic thing of that. It comes from that era of like very a lot of excitement about independent film, mm-hmm. and like when IFC was actually the independent film channel, and we were getting all these like cool up and coming filmmakers. And I remember Bottle Rocket being one of those movies of seeing, and just that feeling of like yeah. ex- exhilarating of like oh like this this is like a clear new talent. Like I can't wait to see what he does next. And the fact that he's yeah. paid that off, and you've actually seen this incredible kind of career come out of that. But I, yeah, I, that was a movie that I remember being a big advocate for that movie when I first saw it. Telling people, you got to see this little movie, and they're like, "What? But who cares?" I'm like, and that, back then he had to sell. Well, no, but James Conn is in it, so there's like a, there's I a know. star, you know? <laughs> yeah. Dude, dude, I, I I love Bottle Rocket so much, and it was it was it was such an agonizing whatever till I finally saw it. So it was like one of those movies because because it, it was put out by Sony, but it was like a whatever offering lower or whatever priority offering so it was like one of those movies like i saw the trailer for like like not forever but i saw the trailer for a good two or three months in front of a bunch of movies i was like oh i want to see this movie and then i start reading about it and in, in film magazines and stuff and then like the, you know the poster was always up in my local theater and it was one of those fucking things when it came out like i don't know if it didn't perform good enough or what but it didn't it didn't play my it didn't play cincinnati theatrically that i know of at all yeah i didn't see the theater either i had to rent it but i remember my the way I found out about it was when it was reviewed on Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. And obviously they both loved it. And I, I still remember they showed like the little, you know, the clip of Owen Wilson riding up in the, the yellow jumpsuit and everything. And, and him just talking about like what a great, like little crime caper this is. And this is when I was watching their show, like every weekend, you know, and again, you were finding out about these like cool little movies. And that was one that I had on my radar. And same thing. I was like, man, I want to go see this. Why is this not playing around me? And had to wait for it to hit video. Yeah. And, and like, I remember we just got direct TV and it was like, christmas break and it was like because we just signed up they gave us like three coupons to do pay-per-view movies i only end up using one out of the three but but it was bottle rocket was on pay-per-view and i was like oh i gotta get and i remember watching it by myself like you know on a sunday afternoon like all by myself and like i fell in love with it and i was just like i've seen it like probably 20 30 my fucking favorite thing is at the end when when like the caper goes wrong and like owen wilson is kind of like taking the fall you know he he mm-hmm. decides he's going to take the fall for it i i love it when like they're they're getting away and they're like they're like well, you got to come with us he's like no no he's like they'll never catch me because i'm fucking innocent and he runs away <laughs> he fucking quotes guns and roses and he runs away and gets arrested like i don't know like and, and see that's another thing too is like because i feel like most people kind of you know, and it's understandable because his his second film Rushmore, and I went to see that when it came out and stuff. But but like Rushmore was a wide release through Disney and stuff. So I get people who fell in love with his quirkier shit later, and then they go back to Bottle Rocket, and it, to them it's not really like Wes Anderson or it's not really mm-hmm. that 
that high stakes or interesting or artistic or whatever. But to me, like, like I've, I fucking wish he'd do another movie like more like bottle rocket. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it surprised me. And I still don't get this. I still get into debates people about this. These like idiots who, whenever, every time a new West Anderson movie comes out, they're just like, Oh, here's that again. It's like, yeah, dude, it's not like this guy's cranking out a movie a year, you know? And like, in like what, almost 25 years of filmmaking now he's made yeah. like nine movies. Yeah. Um, and I think like, yeah, he has a distinctive style. What? That's cool, yeah. right? If you either like it or you don't, but you don't have to like shit on it every time, dude. But like, I'm just, I'm, I'm surprised that because people kind of mock how all his films look the same now, that yeah. you don't see more of those people at least going back to Bottle Rock and being like, well, that's the one we like, you know? Yeah, yeah, dude. I, I mean, he kind of, like Woody Allen kind of became more of a chameleon in like the late '90s, early 2000s. But mm-hmm. for the '70s and '80s, you knew a fucking Woody Allen movie when you yeah. saw it, like you know what I mean, like. There's no problem. Like, that's the thing. It's like, Wes Anderson has developed this interesting style, and yeah. it's it works every time, essentially. You know, some of them are better than others, but I don't know. Why why complain about that? Well, you, you don't yeah. complain when a painter does the same kind of painting over and over, you know? And, yeah, and, like, if, if what he does sucks so bad, how come so many people, like, were trying to copy his shit for so long, you know? Like, mm-hmm. like even Ryan, like, we were talking one time. I actually like the film, but, like, Brothers Bloom, uh, Ryan Johnson, like, that's clearly, clearly a Wes Anderson, you know, homage kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah. But, yeah, I figured you would like Dune. Like, like where where like because I, I know you like Blade Runner as well, but like where are you just overall in Villeneuve? Or like are are you bowing down to the master Aquino? Like do you think he's overrated, underrated, correctly rated? What do you think? I think he's correctly rated. I will say to me, I think Denny Villeneuve is the filmmaker that a lot of people think Christopher Nolan is. Yeah, I, I agree I, with I think, that. I think Villeneuve is like the better version of Nolan. The the, the if you're talking about like heady, intelligent blockbuster filmmaking. I'm way more interested in like what he's doing than what Nolan yeah. is doing nowadays. Well, I, I feel like more people kind of got on Villeneuve's nuts because of Blade Runner, and I I totally understand why. I mean, it's a it was a movie that like in a weird way was almost kind of like anticipated for thirty years. But like mm-hmm. like my my top three of his films, and I, and I didn't see his like very early low budget Canadian film, but like my my top three list of his films, I think is actually I think my favorite one is probably. Um, Sicario. Yeah, Sicario's great. Yeah, I love Sicario. And then, like, I actually, it was just a movie I just went to, like, go see just to go see. But uh, I actually was very, very impressed with Prisoners. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Enemy? I would. I, yeah, I like I like yeah. Enemy a lot. Yeah. Um, I forgot what my third one I was going to say, but it's like another one of his that. Oh, Arrival. I like, I really mm-hmm. like Arrival. Um, actually, on bl- early Black Friday deals, I just ordered a copy and I'm actually looking forward to rewatching it. Well, and that's what I like about him, too. Is like, so you and I, in the course of this show and other conversations, we've had the opportunity to talk a lot about a lot of filmmakers who will do some genre stuff and then be like, they don't want to get stuck in genre. And I'm very taken with all these recent interviews I've read with Villeneuve where he, it, where he flat out says, I want to be a sci-fi filmmaker. Like everything I was doing up till arrival was me just getting the clout and proving I could work with these budgets to where they would give me the budgets. And he's like, yeah, that's what now I did arrival. I did Blade Runner Dune. It's like, this is the genre I've always wanted to work in. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Cause you don't see, you see a lot of filmmakers be like, well, I'll make a sci-fi film, but then I want to make sure I go back to drama. And I love the villain. It was just like, no, I want to make big budget sci-fi. <laughs> like, so I, I love him even more for just committing to that and being like, yeah, every other thing I did was just a step along the way to get to that necessarily. Yeah. Like, like I was really kind of disappointed and like, I don't know if it was a thing of like, it was made before or after other movies or what, but he, to me, he was already a name by the time enemy got made and like enemy got mm-hmm. a really fucked up, like non-release. Yeah. Like, like I, I could be wrong about this, 
But I swear to God, Enemy to this day is still only released on DVD even. I could be wrong Yeah, you might be that. right. It's too bad. That's a movie you would love to see, like, with a mainstream audience, just yeah. to get to that last moment and just yeah. see what the theater reaction is to that. Yeah, yeah. I just thought the whole, the whole pre- you know, without spoiling too much, I just thought the whole premise of the film and the way it played out. And I'm kind of a big whatever Gyllenhaal. Like, like uh, Gyllenhaal's another one. If, if uh, Villeneuve would have made Dune 10, 15 years earlier, I would have been all for Gyllenhaal doing it. But, you know uh, we're not supposed to like Gyllenhaal anymore, though, because he broke up with Taylor Swift 10 years ago. Yeah, what's some weird... I keep seeing weird headlines about them dating, like, years ago, and, like, A, I never knew they dated, but, B, it's, like, who gives a fuck? Like, it hasn't... Well, I mean, so the, there's this thing now where... Not to... Well, we we'll talk about a tangent in this podcast. Yeah. But, so <laughs> well, t- it's the end of the year. Let's do it. <laughs> so, so Taylor Swift is doing the whole thing now where she's re-releasing new recordings of our old albums right. to get, like, the, the rights to them back. To get the money like, back, yeah. Well, because, yeah, that guy who, like, was, like, a, a, was terrible to her, he owns the original albums, essentially. Yeah. So she is re-recording them so that now fans can buy those ones instead. Mm. And she's going in and expanding some of the songs. And so because it's a re-release of Red, which is a, a previous album from her, people are kind of being reintroduced to the songs she wrote about their brief relationship. And so it's like this new generation of Taylor Swift fans are suddenly like uh, looking at him as the devil again because they, they dated for three months and it didn't go very well. Um, I don't know. It's I, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty is, silly. But. Yeah, I mean, as, as long as like whatever like as long as he didn't do anything in a, of a criminal nature to her okay yeah, I'm, some... I, I'm pleasantly wrong enemy is on blu-ray just for some reason when i rented it from netflix it wasn't but um yeah unless something criminal happened between the two like who cares i mean like nothing against her i mean it's not any but i mean didn't she date a lot of other famous people and it didn't work out i mean yeah it's just some relationships yeah. don't work you know yeah. i don't know that's that's fucking weird. but you know what i mean obviously not trying not to go down a tangent here but like yeah, like, like I, I feel like the, like even the early days of the internet, Trev, like when you know there was people on movie message boards and stuff. Like I feel like we've gotten to this weird shift of social media, I guess shit. Whereas it used to be, we would be online to talk about the movies, the music, the TV, the books, the whatever that we cared about, and like now people just obsess on like the people's personal lives, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't even get how you make those strong judgments. I mean, obviously, if it's like something you know, terrible comes out about somebody, you know what I mean? But, like, other than that, like, I don't get how people, like, try to read into these people's personal lives when we don't know, like, what, I mean, it's it's their personal life. We don't know what's going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's just weird. It's weird. Um, well, I want to thank you for bringing this film to the table, and um, uh, I want to th- also thank you, too, because I was late to the party because I was actually off for the second half of October. I was just picking up again. Uh, I was enjoying the, uh, the the I'm sorry, what was it called? The the Halloween episode of the, the Days of Future Podcast? <laughs> Our Halloween Spooktacular? Yeah, like, uh, you, like, like I, th- I thought we, because like, I, I don't know if you know this, uh, Trev, but when you're not here, pretty much just, this is a podcast that's uh, diverted about finding excuses to talk about semen and films. But um, I thought we went into some weird uh, kind of comedic tangents or non-comedic tangents, however you want to look at it. You and Joe, man, Halloween is a, a reason for you guys to let loose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's always an interesting episode because we want to do a Halloween special, but we don't really know what that means for that podcast. So right, it's usually, right. usually a somewhat crazy one for us. Yeah. Uh, I like the part where it got kind of like uh, contentious because uh, you were trying to give the history of pumpkins and uh, Joe didn't have the uh, <laughs> the patience for it. And then his wife came in and that was interesting uh, because his wife is a woman who doesn't like other women. I found that interesting. But, uh, 
but it, but at least you guys got the episode off to a to a fun start with the spooky scary song. Yeah, of course we knew we had to. Especially after talking to you, I told Joe like we can't we can't let the listeners down. We got to have werewolf bar mitzvah in there. Exactly. So it'll probably, it'll probably like like that was the last episode I think that you guys posted. Do you have anything yeah. else coming up? Uh, we are trying to figure out what the next thing will be. We've uh, we've both been kind of busy, but uh, we're, we're we don't we never promise that. We're not the most uh, regularly regularly released show, yeah. <laughs> but we try to find interesting uh, things to talk about. We will probably be doing an episode soon to talk about um, just our speculation on what that newly announced uh, X Men '97 cartoon will be like as they yeah. are bringing back the animated series. And we're both excited about. Obviously, when that show starts running, we'll be reviewing it. But we want to talk about it a little bit. Uh, what do we think it means to do that? Because it's obviously a big announcement. Because this is kind right. of Disney's first big play with X Men as a property since taking over. So. Yeah, I'm I'm curious how much modern Disney is going to be shoved into that if it will still feel authentic to the time period or not. But yeah, but I mean everybody loved X Men cartoon in the '90s, so you know. Yeah, and I have I have conflicted thoughts about it in general. Like I think it's really cool they're doing it. I, I like the idea and I get the idea. There's also a part of me, and we've talked about this on the show quite frequently. There's a part of me frustrated that still to most people that's the only version of X Men that they know right. and they think that is the X Men. It's just that '97 team, and so I think this show is not going to help that. Um, there's so many eras of X-Men post 97 po- or post the nineties that I think you could right. also make a cartoon out of and introduce people to new characters and things. So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted on it. I'm excited, but I'm also tentatively like, Oh, is this just going to cause the same problem where like, even say when you go to target or, um, Kohl's, right. To get like your, mm-hmm. your graphic tees, yeah. <laughs> all the X-Men shirts are the team from the nineties. You know? oh, like, oh, there's so trust. many permutations of it since then. <laughs> trust me that, that those are the ones I own. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but uh not to drag this out uh too long whatever um not to go on a tangent but uh marvel is in full-on phase four like they are they are dragging the dregs of whatever in terms of characters um and they kind of announced more of the future are you surprised that there's still no x-men on the horizon like i think they're just having a hard time figuring out what like i, I mean obviously it's going to be it's going to be a crucial turning point for them i think when you're looking at what's coming up you understand how important the X-Men are for them, yeah. you know, especially with this kind of like um, muted reaction to Eternals, which I still have not even seen. And I think that's kind yeah. of telling because, you know, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely an MCU guy. And it's like, yeah. I can't even get the motivation to go to the theater to check it out. At this point, I'm just like, no, I'll just wait for two months when it comes on Disney plus. I'll, I'll check it the, out. The, that's, that's where I'm at. And uh, I mean, um, I got to say, that's a great strategy for me personally, because I like I you know whatever like 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 I I haven't been too high on Marvel stuff for a while now their TV and movies and it's you know to, to like I watched Black Widow and then Shang Chi on Disney Plus which by the way we've been saying it wrong for years Trev it's Shang Chi yeah Shang Chi yeah. not Shang Chi but anyway like I was like watching those movies on streaming like it actually like. I probably ended up liking them more because the expectations were gone, if you know what I mean. I mean, I did, I did like both of them. I especially, and I, yeah. this is apparently the minority view, but I, I liked Black Widow quite a bit. I know, like, I've seen a lot of people rank that really low in their MCU rankings, and I thought that was, like, a really effective, just kind of solo adventure film for her. But, um, but yeah, I liked them fine. I, just, I don't know, there's something about Eternals where it just doesn't grab me. And, like, the TV stuff, I've liked most of it. I didn't really like Falcon Winter Soldier too much. But I didn't either. I got one I episode left of it. I liked yeah. Loki. Um, but then it's like I saw that like graphic of like you know twelve new shows next yeah. year or whatever. And it's like, and it's what just, is like, all this shit? Yeah. This is the problem is you can't get. So I wish they would just understand. I guess I mean obviously we do have the yahoos on YouTube who just scream about everything. But for me yeah. as, a, as a normal person, 
I can't get excited about any one thing when you're telling me about 12 new things coming right. out of the pipeline. It's just right. too much. It feels overwhelming. And I feel like even though if I probably will watch most of those, when you tell me about it at once, I'm like, ugh, ugh, I got to watch all this stuff next year too. Like it's just, yeah, at this, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of feeling the same way with you with MCU where I'm, I'm, I'll never completely turn on it, but it's not one of my highest moments right now. Yeah, and like, you know me, like I'm not going to like judge or prejudge your movie based on whether I know the characters or not. By all means, empty the closets of uh, MCU mm-hmm. characters, you know, bring up all the, but like, definitely phase five, whenever that kind of goes in the swing, I was like, we need either Fantastic Four or X Men, yeah, like already, for sure. like 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 I'm all for the minor characters getting kind of you know modernized and gussied up and everything, but like I'm, I'll be honest, like I like I'm sick of like the characters I know being pushed to streaming only, never being in movies again, and then the movies being just all like basically lesser characters. You know what I mean? So yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's gonna be it's an interesting time for them. I think X Men will be if they can figure it out. X Men will be their saving grace. Yeah. But if they mess it up, then it'll, they'll fall on their face. But the nice thing about X Men is it doesn't yeah. it doesn't give them one property. It gives them multiple properties, and I hope that's what they understand. You know, you can have X Men, you can have X Force, you can have X Factor, you can have multiple TV shows. So, um, yeah, that's that, that's why I like. So you could also, of course, do the solo films. I'm sure there Wolverine will get a movie. You know, so so we'll see. I heard somebody say something the other day, and I kind of agree with it. Like, even I knew. I always knew Phase 4 was going to be, like, a rebuilding phase, introducing new things, and I don't have a problem with that at all. But it, but it, it's... You get you need something big soon, because for a lot of people, Endgame was the perfect send-off for the MCU, and I think a lot of people are fine just leaving it at that. Like, I feel like they need to kind of wow people again. I'll, I'll tell you what MCU's strategic mistake is right now, I think is that they have given no indication of what the next big thing they're building to is. Right. So they've, right. they've introduced Kang the Conqueror, but they haven't made it clear, is he meant to be, because they've said he's like the next big bad, bad Marvel, but what does that mm-hmm. mean? Yeah, right. is, exactly. he, is that's building to another Avengers film with him, or just appearing on a bunch of the TV shows? If you at least right. told us what you're, well, I hate to use the word endgame because it has a different context now, yeah. but if you at least told us what you're trying to aim at at the end of Phase 4 or at the end of Phase 5, we would at least know where you're heading. And that's the thing, is it, it feels more directionless right now. I agree, I don't it, get it feels... Our, is there, when, especially with Chadwick Boseman's unfortunate passing, like... Yeah, who, that's Because, you know, in our, in our heads, we were like, oh, well, he's going to be the new leader of the Avengers, that makes sense, but now that's out of play, so... I don't even know what the next Avengers movie looks like, you know, and we don't know when it's coming. So, yeah, I just don't know. I don't know what their ultimate overall plan is. It just seems like a lot of independent properties suddenly. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's harder to be excited, because at least with the, the previous phases, we always knew we were building to the next Avengers film. I agree, I agree a thousand percent. Like, I was kind of slogging through the TV shows, and uh, especially Shang-Chi was a nice little, you know, n- nothing groundbreaking, but it was a nice little bright spot. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. like, let's get some momentum. It, like, it's just a momentum problem. That's all it is. It's mm-hmm. not that the content's bad, not that it's shitty, not that you want to stop watching. It's just a momentum problem. And it's, it's funny, too, because, like, with all this Spider-Man hoo-ha, it's just, like... I don't know. That Spider-Man movie is either going to go over huge or it's going to be the biggest backfire of all time. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I, I do think – I don't think they should have released that newest trailer. I don't know if you watched it. I did, yeah. Oh, boy. That is so – I was – The CGI is just so bad now. Yes, it's it like, is. It is. You already had people – everyone was going to see this movie anyways. Now, why would you put a bad taste in our mouths with this trailer? You know, like – Well, uh, yeah. It, 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 it is, and I got and I got to say, too, it's like – 
if the spider men's are in it show me the spider men's now like i'm not not about being teased and cajoled just let me know like are we getting a movie of spider men's or not that's all i want to know so dumb they're like trying to keep this such a secret but then they're releasing the movie like two weeks early in the uk so yeah what do you think is going to happen yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's 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 beyond it's it's to the point where it's like making me mad like (laughs) it's a movie i did not care about like whatsoever like oh yeah i'll watch it when it comes out it's fine whatever to now it's like you got my expectations up for a certain like just level like i just want to see something that's just bonkers and over the top and crazy and now it's just like they keep trying to play coy and it's like you know what fuck you (laughs) like And I'm guessing you've probably also heard, and I know reshoots are a standard process for them, but yeah. apparently they're like undergoing massive reshoots on Doctor Strange yeah. too. Yeah, that, that and has that just to be worried because, yeah, because yeah. like already I saw someone tweet, and it's like that was my immediate thought too of like, uh oh, did Sam Raimi turn into a Sam Raimi movie? And yeah. they're like, no, 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 like mm-hmm. that's this is too Sam Raimi. Like that's my that's my concern. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm worried about that one too. Where where that was like to me was going to be the next big one. Like oh, I can't wait to kind of you know dig into this one coming up. And it's like mm-hmm. oh, reshoots, great. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it is what it is. Well, I, I guess all we can do is sit tight and whatever. But don't um, worry, soon we have. Um, black adam with the rock coming so oh that's DC back yeah. on top Whew, you know? that's gonna be so good and uh <laughs> and he'll be on he'll be on facebook nonstop telling you how it's the number one whatever mm-hmm. this and the number one whatever that and greatest oh, yeah. innovation of uh but hey you know what when it comes to superhero movies trev you'll never top the original alien am i right yeah, uh, Alien. What was the, what was the other one he said that was like a superhero movie? Yeah, I can't remember. It was like Alien. And oh, Blade Runner. I think Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it be awesome if he's if he's did, if Ridley did a mic drop and like you know I already made the best comic book film of all time. Uh, you ever guys see a little movie called Kingdom of Heaven? Boom. <laughs> Supposed to sell uh, Thelma and Louise's superhero film, you know. It builds to them flying at the end, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, they did fly. He, he's he's like, we cut away. Just you, you don't know, they flew. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm a little behind on uh, failure to franchise too. Like, can you give a sneak peek of uh, maybe what your December slate will look like since this will come out early December? Sure can. Uh, so for December, we decided to do. You know, we like our theme months, and uh, I came up with a theme where I said. Since it's December, since it's Christmas time, how about we gift each other um, movies to do? And which means I said, let's each pick a film that we want to review for whatever reason that we don't think would necessarily come up in like our regular rotation when we're trying to figure out themes. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea was that I would pick a movie from our overall list and Chris would pick a movie from our overall list and the, neither person could veto it. So I got to choose a movie to do and Chris got to choose a movie to do. And since this is coming out when it is, I can tell you what those two movies were because we announced them at the end of our, uh, our last November episode. So Chris chose, we will, in December, we'll be watching Chris's Choices, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. Oh, uh, yes. Which I've never seen, and neither is Chris. That'll be a first time watch for both. Oh, you guys are in for a treat. Okay. And then the one I chose, because this is a movie I've been wanting to revisit for years now and haven't got around to, and I knew, I, I, I brought it up with Chris before, and he had not seen it, but he had put it on his list once I talked about it. Uh, I think you're going to be excited about this, Goat. I picked Tank Girl. Oh, amazing. I, I yeah. I haven't sat down and done all the three, all the way through rewatch, but yeah, like I was a big fan of Tanker when it was released theatrically, mm-hmm. and then I've yeah, seen it on cable again recently. Man, I love the makeup on the kangaroo man. I love it. Yeah, I just think it's such a fast. It's another one of those movies that's just so weird and so fascinating. And uh, I know, like, there. I don't know if you heard, like, Margot Robbie bought the rights to it. 
No. She's trying to like, yeah, she's trying to develop a new version. That's one of those things oh, where you never God. know if it's going to go anywhere, right? That but would be a dream she project. She seems perfect for it, right? Like, so that, that yeah. I mean, seeing her play Harley, she definitely, there's not too much difference between Harley and Tank Girl, but it, that's, it, that's a character that deserves to be on a big screen again. You so. know what's weird about Margot Robbie and what infuriates me about, like, kind of like the whatever fandom narrative around her? I mean, don't get me wrong, like, you know, whatever. Looks-wise, she's a, she's a 100 out of 10, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's like to me it's like what makes her so awesome as a performer um like not that she did a bad job or anything but like everybody's like oh wolf of wall street she's naked and she's a like to me that's like my least favorite margot robbie role because that's like the least expressive the least i mean she did good in it but it's like yeah i love the ones where she's like weird and crazy and like just doing whatever and not being glamorous you know what i mean like, like, I mean, sorry that she was, you know, made in the mold of the slightly more perfect version of Jamie Presley physically, but as a, as an actress, like, I love that she, uh, she kind of like swings for the fences the way she does. Yeah, like with like an I, Tanya or... Oh, I love I, Tanya. yeah, yeah. I mean, even Harley Quinn, I mean, I know it's cliche because Harley Quinn is like the whatever Halloween costume, but even her take on that, like, I find interesting. And the the fact that people don't really pick up on it, but that, like, every time she appears as Harley Quinn, it's a slightly different, like, version of the character. Well, yeah, and that's the thing, like, I have to, I have to admit, like, I'll, like, I'll eat crow on this story. When they first cast her, I was not super excited about it, and I think it's because, as you said, like, I, you know, she was, she already shown her talent, but... As good as she was in Wolf of Wall Street, it definitely was like, at that point, it was like, oh, she's just the new bombshell, right? She's the new yeah. bombshell in Hollywood. And they're getting a bombshell to play Harley Quinn. But then the level of enthusiasm and gusto she dove into that with, and you said, like, she did exactly what we always want the people who get cast these parts to, to do. You can tell she just got obsessed with the character, went all in on it. You can tell she's read, like, multiple Harley Quinn stories. She's, she's trying to produce more Harley Quinn content. She's the one who's like, yeah, I eventually want to get to, like, sirens of gotham and bring in poison ivy and she seems so excited to play that character and like you said she plays it slightly different each time it's just uh you know it's that there's like a few times in superhero history where just the right person was cast for that part yeah right? you think of like robert Downey jr as iron man ryan reynolds as deadpool and i think now she fits into that with harley yeah i can't wait i can't wait to hear you guys cover hansel and greta because i just love how <laughs> fucking crazy that movie is but it, but it's like I, that's going to be a great episode for your show because because one thing one thing i gotta give a shout out to chris who i don't i don't know at all like not at all never had one interaction with the guy what i like about chris in terms of listening to him as a, as a podcaster is i love that he goes hard like <laughs> like like sometimes i'll listen to the episode and i'll be like yeah chris you're my boy like he'll he'll defend like the most whatever trash movie like he gets it and then there's other times like there'll be like a movie that's just like whatever and he fucking hates the shit out of it and that's interesting to listen to too you know what i mean mm-hmm. like so if i had to make a prediction i think i think you'll have a little bit of fun with the uh, hansel and gretel and i think chris will hate it but i could be wrong because it's one of those movies that it, that could even like flip-flop like that you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah he knows. i know the reason he picked it was because it's short yeah. <laughs> that was his. Uh, that was his ultimate deciding factor. He looked at our overall list, and that one was only eighty-eight minutes. And we figured with credits, that's probably a good quick watch. Yeah, um, like it's not a movie that feels like it's been butchered or not, but but it definitely feels like a movie where like the studio was like, "Come on, guys, make it all killer, no filler." So like, mm-hmm. you you you. I don't want to say it's nonstop action because it's not, but you, you you'll get quite a few action scenes. And I'm just uh, curious because it's like. 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin too much, but it's just like your guys, uh, your guys, uh, episode about the Hellboy movie, the, the heart David Harbor one yeah. for Mela Junovich. Like that, that was one of the funniest episodes to listen to. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if Hansel and Gretel could turn out like that or could turn out like something else. But yeah, so I'm looking for that. You even, I'm like, why don't you tease some people? Why don't you make them listen to your other podcast, Trev? Now I'm dying to listen to the episode. So Yeah. It's going to be fun. So, Dan Aykroyd, living legend, Dan Aykroyd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll be like the uh, the Shire Reeve and he'll live old enough to be uh, making Blues Brothers 3000. You never know. Yeah, he's just had a diet of only Crystal Skull uh, vodka. Yeah, yeah, he makes the Crystal Skull vodka. He, so, he's clearly in touch with the aliens. I mean, we know this, so... Please, Dan Aykroyd, if you're listening, and we're pretty sure you he are. Was in, Dan Aykroyd's in the wrong Indiana Jones movie. He's in Temple of Doom, but he should have been in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's right. That's right. He he should have been the scriptwriter. Like maybe that maybe that <laughs> wouldn't have been any worse than what we got. So. Well, yeah, which by the way, I watched that movie for the first time a few months ago, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, you need to either swing bigger or you need to like, you know what I mean? Like come Crystal Skull. Stuff. Yeah, Crystal Skull. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm one of those guys who I think the first half is actually really really good. Yeah, I'm I'm really into it for the first half, and it just kind of it really loses the narrative in the in the second half. Too many dumb twists and uh, not enough kind of not enough exposition at the end to really explain what the hell is happening. So. Well, the good news is they're making an, another Indiana Jones movie, so the 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 series will not end on Crystal Skull. Now that's the good news. The bad news is entire seasons of season two, three, and four of uh, Shutter's cursed films is going to be based on the new Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. Yeah, so as you were talking, I just actually got word. I think it's been delayed again till uh, 2028 now. So. Yeah, yeah, years and years. And uh, it's like I think Mola Ram is working his curse because uh, Indiana Jones is going to look like the Shire Reeve by the time. Yeah, he, he will. And anything that could go like literally Indiana Jones that that should be the subtitle for the new Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, you know, whatever semicolon nothing but trouble. That's how you yeah. do. It. <laughs> All right, everybody. I want to thank you for uh, listening, uh, Trev. I want to thank you for another year of hard, mm-hmm. hard. I know you got calluses on those hands from digging up these uh, old films. So, thank you for being a, a grave digger here in the movie. Of grave, course, right? yeah. I'll always be. I'll always be on call. Absolutely, everybody. Again, we always appreciate you. We, we you know, it's a pleasure to uh, go down a, a trip of a uh, nostalgia, you know, memory lane, however you want to put it. And uh, and we do it for free, Trev. We don't. We're not digging up this shit to to make a dollar like uh, Ivan Reitman. We, we just do it for fun. So, again, everybody, we'll see you again here soon in the movie graveyard. Mm-hmm.